0: Hey, deserving listeners. Today, it's just me. I'm going to do a deep dive on passive-aggressive personality disorder and just passive-aggressive behavior in general. Passive-aggressive personality disorder is one of the most interesting elements of the field of psychology and psychotherapy and psychiatry. For the majority of the history of our field, passive-aggressive personality disorder was one of the most popular Diagnoses in all of mental health. In the past, everyone knew how to diagnose it. Most clinicians would tell you they had several patients with pers- uh, passive-aggressive personality disorder, and yet today the diagnosis no longer exists. the The diagnosis is gone. So, for decades, it was one of the most prominent diagnoses in the DSM. But then, in the latest DSM published in 2013, passive-aggressive personality disorder just vanished from the DSM. Why Why would that happen? How could one of the most common psychiatric conditions of all time just disappear? Well, that's what I'm going to talk about today. Also, passive-aggressive personality disorder is perhaps one of the most misunderstood diagnoses, in my opinion. Almost everything that I've read on the internet and seen videos on the internet of people talking about it, almost everything I can find in my opinion is completely inaccurate or very simplistic. There are articles on psychology today that characterize uh, passive aggressive personality disorder in a way that sounds like half of the United States would qualify for it. And it's, it's, it doesn't do us any good to, talk about personality disorders in this really simplistic and, and inaccurate way. As with all personality disorders, the general public and many clinicians frankly think that they understand passive aggressive personality disorder but in reality they have again a very simplistic sort of book understanding of it. You really have to interact with a number of people with this disorder. You have to you have to know personality disorders really well frankly. And you can't just look at the symptoms in a book and just understand it. Personality disorders are super complex, and they're often described, even among clinicians, in this really, really simplistic, misunderstood way. This is not to say that in this episode that I'm going to describe it in this super superior way. That's not what I'm claiming here, but... I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm going to try to describe this from a number of different angles. I mean, there are videos on YouTube of people describing passive-aggressive personality disorder in, like, three minutes. And I, I just have to say that's impossible. You can't explain any personality disorder in three minutes. It's just, it's just not possible. And this, this sort of simplistic way of looking at personality disorders is what I think leads to a lot of clinicians and obviously the public misunderstanding it. So hopefully by the end of this deep dive, which I'm guessing is going to go on for hours, you will be able to recognize this this personality in other people, because it's very likely that you know people with this sort of personality. Another really weird thing about passive-aggressive personality disorder is that aside from, say, narcissistic personality disorder, passive-aggressive personality disorder has become a part of the popular vernacular and language. I bet You, every adult in the United States is called someone "quote unquote" passive aggressive, right? How did this term become so popular among lay people? In fact, one of the things people say about Seattle is that us in Seattle, that you know, we're all super passive aggressive. They will say, you know, Seattle is just a bunch of passive aggressive people. Supposedly, we're the most passive aggressive city in the world. You know, Is that true? Are we really the most passive (laughs) aggressive city in the world? I don't know. Well, that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to do a deep dive on passive aggression. I'm going to talk about the history of the disorder going back to the 1800s, the history of the DSM and of the personality disorder, the symptoms. I'm going to talk about the symptoms. I'm going to talk about common presentations. And this is where it really helps to talk in length about this sort of thing you have to talk about a full presentation in order to really understand you can't just look at symptoms because if you look at symptoms you half the people you know would qualify for this disorder so you really have to see the the, the full depth and the the way in which these personalities are uh structured and how they they manifest in ways that aren't obvious uh upon first meeting that but anyway so i'm going to talk about common presentations I'll provide some case examples i'll present causes how per- passive aggressive personality disorder is created and then i'll end with talking about the treatment how, how do we treat people with disorder and whether or not seattle is indeed the most passive aggressive city in the world again i have uh many pages of notes and uh, if if history serves this episode will be about three hours long <laughs> Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am program director at the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron yet of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins, before the three-hour talk begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Become a patron, and I'll send you the instructions on how to access hundreds of premium episodes like this one. I do many deep dives, including personality disorders, but on many other things. And remember that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. Okay, welcome to the Patron o- Zone, people. Thank you for being a patron. You are super cool for that. As I've said before, and I'll say again, it's... Because of you that we make this podcast, and particularly these deep dives, I've spent a couple of weeks preparing for this episode, and if there weren't patrons, I wouldn't do that. I'd just be like, ah, oh, there's probably other things I could do with my time. So uh, so thanks for being a patron. All right, let's go into everything. First off, before moving forward, I just want to provide a quick description of passive-aggressive personality disorder so that you have some, some sort of context for the next section of this lecture. In a nutshell, in the way I see it, so you should always take that into account. This is one person's opinion, and there's a lot of different opinions about personality disorders, particularly this one. But in a nutshell, in the way I see it, there are two types of passive-aggressive personality. And I guess I should also say before moving forward that you have what we might call passive-aggressive personality disorder disorder, which we might consider to be the most extreme end of the spectrum. Then we have what we might call more broadly passive-aggressive personality, or passive-aggressive personality disorder sh- traits. So for saying the word traits, then we're saying it's subclinical, meaning it's not full-blown passive-aggressive personality disorder, but they have but the person has some traits of it, so they're, you know, if you have the president, then they would be a vice president. <laughs> I don't know why I'm using that analogy, but Freud would probably have a few things to say about that one, that associative thing. But but we also would say passive aggressive personality as a broad term that includes both people with traits and with people with the disorder. And I, I prefer to use the term passive aggressive personality because I don't really care what the DSM has to say or the conventions around thresholds. Because when I work with people I don't care necessarily, you know. If, if I'm treating someone with with a borderline personality, I don't care if they qualify for the disorder or not. It, it's more a matter of what sort of presentation do they have around this personality. And there there are many many people who present with passive aggressive personality, but they don't really meet the criteria for the full disorder. And it's still the treatment is still the same, and the 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 causes are still the same. And so so. So you have passive-aggressive personality disorder, you have passive-aggressive personality, which is a broad term, and then we have another term, which is passive-aggressive behavior, which, of course, can be exhibited by someone with the disorder or with the personality or someone without the personality. Everyone has committed passive-aggressive behavior, which I'll get into more later. But anyway, in a nutshell, there are two types of passive-aggressive personality And these are my terms. You have the super passive type and then the somewhat overt type. So I'll go into detail here. So both types of people, whether you're the super passive type or the somewhat overt type, both types of people with passive aggressive personality have been treated very unfairly by their parents in some way. So they grow up with an intense feeling that they are always being treated unfairly by their parents. That can look like abuse. It can look like just bad parenting, inconsistent parenting, or, uh, but more on that later. So these people as children, they perpetually feel like everyone is treating them unfairly. And this results in them deeply resenting other people. So it's not just like, oh boy, the world is unfair. They, as a result, deeply resent people. And they see the world through a lens that makes them see much more unfairness than is actually there. And as a result of this constant sense of unfairness in the world, they naturally feel very angry. Uh, You know, frequently they're very angry. That's where the aggression part comes in. But they don't feel like others care enough about them to receive their anger and they are terrified that their anger will provoke others to reject or abandon them. So instead of communicating their anger overtly, they disguise their anger through passive-aggressive behavior. So both types have these qualities, whether you're the super-passive type or the somewhat overt type. For those with the super-passive type— Instead of telling you that they don't want to do a chore, for instance, they will happily agree to do the chore, and then they will screw it up somehow. Maybe they'll turn it in really late, or they'll do the chore really badly. And when you confront them about it, they'll act like they don't understand what you're talking about. They they might even act as though you're the crazy one for even bringing it up. And you'll walk away feeling a little crazy because they seem to be so nice, but deep down, you know that they are perpetually disappointing you, but you can't really reconcile the fact that they're being overtly nice, but they are constantly disappointing you. And if these super passive types are provoked enough, they might actually reveal their true feelings by becoming rageful and possibly even abusive. But at least there will be brief moments with particular people where the aggression will potentially reveal itself but it's very rare. They might invent a lot of strange accusations during these moments, and they might even be slightly delusional about past events, meaning that they have a very distorted view of reality that skews towards them being treated unfairly when in fact they might not have been treated unfairly. But for the vast majority of the time, these super passive types, they are not overtly angry. In fact, they usually seem to be the nicest people on the planet until you really get to know them. So this is one common presentation. Someone with the somewhat overt type of passive aggressive personality has the same background as a child. As a child, they were treated unfairly and developed a deep sense that others treat them unfairly. And this feeling extends into adulthood and makes them see unfairness when it doesn't really exist. But what makes this type different from the super passive type is that They are much more obvious in their oppositional behavior. When someone tells them what to do, they will usually openly grumble about it. They won't be like in your face with the grumbling, but you'll sense their discomfort. For example, they might not grumble around their boss at work, but they will grumble around their coworkers. They are much more vocal about their disdain for authority, but they never communicate their feelings in a functional way. And like the super passive type, the somewhat overt, overt, overt type of passive aggressive personality, they are also really dependent on others in that they are really focused on what others think about them. So you got the super passive type and the somewhat overt type of passive aggressive personality. And I'll obviously go into more of that uh, detail later, but I just want to give you that context as we go into the history because it's going to take a while to discuss that. Okay, the history of the disorder. Over the past 100 plus years, there have been many different terms used to describe this construct. You have negativistic personality disorder, circuitous negativistic personality, abrasive negativistic personality, irritable negativistic personality discontented personality, resentful personality, oppositional personality, cyclothymia, amp- amphithymia, skeptical personality, masochistic personality, and dependent personality. So throughout the years, there have been a lot of different labels integrating other kinds of ideas. And and as you'll see, as I talk about the history of passive aggressive personality disorder, it's it's sort of a it has a lot of different elements to it that have a hard time cohering together. And maybe that's why it died eventually, but anyway, okay. So going back to the mid 1800s, uh, there's, there's a fair amount of history that you can look into and and a fair amount of writing that by early physicians and early psychiatrists in which they seem to be describing what we might call to be today, passive aggressive personality, But they used other terms, uh, particularly as Freud started coming around. They started using terms like oral sadistic melancholia or masochistic personality or, again, like I said before, cyclothymia and other sorts of terms. But it wasn't until World War II that we first start seeing the term passive-aggressive. So that brings us to World War II. Now, we're at the end of World War II, 1945. The term passive-aggressive was indeed first used during World War II in 1945 in a War Department technical bulletin. In 45, it was used as a label for men who didn't follow orders in the military. These men weren't being openly defiant; instead, they were being passively defiant. So, instead of you know telling the the lieutenant to fuck off. You would pout, or you would be stubborn, or you would screw up the job somehow, or you'd just be generally difficult so the uh, this technical bulletin describes passive aggression within military troops who were passively opposing orders, looking back, it seems likely that many of these men were justifiably Stubborn and were being pathologized by their superior officers and by a system that was very concerned about insubordination. Incidentally, so it's hard to tell what exactly was happening there. You know, you're you're in the military and someone tells you to put your life in danger for something that you think might not necessarily be worth it, or tells you to do something that is particularly hard, and and you feel like. Why do I have to do that? Why doesn't so and so have to do that? You could imagine, you know, you might grumble a little bit. <laughs> and so this, uh, this, this time when they would use this term, it, it's hard to tell if it was actually a personality trait or just like the circumstances. But I'll talk about more of that later. Okay, let's skip forward to 1949 after World War II. The label passive-aggressive was included in a VA document. Again, military. Passive aggression was characterized by passivity, by obstruction, or by angry outbursts in response to orders from superiors in the military. These descriptions focused more on behaviors rather than how the behaviors affect others, as would be the case later, which we'll get into more later. It's it's actually really funny to read this stuff in the military literature. They use terms like... Mr. Milk Toast, or Hen Pecked, to describe people who exhibit passive-aggressive behavior. I mean, Mr. Milk Toast. I'm, I'm guessing that comes from toast that is soaked in milk, which would make it really floppy and weak, I guess. There's actually a Simpsons character named Milk Toast. I, I think he's Milhouse's doppelganger in another area. But anyway, let, just getting into these documents, uh, here's some quotes and this is a military journal, you know, this isn't just someone keeping a diary. This is, this is an official military journal, the United States Armed Forces Medical Journal. Quote, The passive-aggressive dependent character is a boy in man's clothes. Unquote. The passive-aggressive, or no, the passive-dependent character is a boy in man's clothes. Quote, He is a child who never got away from his mother's apron strings, unquote. He is a child who never got away from his mother's apron strings. Again, this is a medical journal, 1949. Another quote, after he is married, if he ever is, he brings his marital squabbles home to mama's big bosom and embracing arms. (laughs) Unquote. Let's say this again. Quote, after he is married, if he ever is... He brings his marital squabbles home to Mama's big bosom and embracing arms. Mama's big bosom—bosom bosom is such a funny word to me, although I did love bosom buddies when I was a kid. But anyway, after he is married, if he ever is, <laughs> he brings his marital squabbles home to Mama's big bosom and embracing arms. So again, medical, medical journal, very—you uh, know—and and people. Who say that psychiatry is a hard science and psychology is a hard science? You know, it's like all you got to do is read stuff like this and realize psychology and psychiatry are not hard sciences. These are highly cultural uh, manifestations and can only be understood within culture. Cannot be understood as hard science. You know, when you talk about physics astrophysics the fact you know gravity and stuff these are these are outside of culture they are things you can measure and it is what it is but the i the the view of human behavior and the view of what's what is considered pathological and what isn't is has is and always has been obviously within culture and of course when if you went back to these people in 1949 it said you realize you're just exhibiting a cultural understanding that that if a man goes home and talks to his mom about his about his marital problems that he's a milquetoast and not worthy and therefore should be pathologized you realize that that's a cultural notion that isn't necessarily is not necessarily shared by all people and there's some oppressive elements of that if you said that to people in 1949 they'd be like you're ridiculous that's stupid well in the same way today we exhibit all sorts of cultural Uh, manifestations within the quote-unquote science of psychology and psychiatry. And 60 years from now, when people look back at us, they're going to be like, oh, man, obviously they were embedded in in that culture at the time, and it seems like they didn't know it. So anyway, just another little plug for culture. Okay, skipping forward to 1952. This is when the first DSM was published. The authors of the DSM, Adopted much of the earlier military language regarding many disorders, including passive-aggressive personality disorder. And this is when we first hear or read the phrase passive-aggressive personality disorder. Up until this point, they were just referring to passive-aggressive behavior or passive-dependent character or that sort of thing. But this is when we we get that language, passive-aggressive personality disorder, that we're so familiar with today. Okay. So in the DSM-1 Passive-aggressive personality disorder was conceptualized as having three different types. A passive-dependent type, which was characterized as being helpless, indecisive, and clingy. This this type would probably eventually be characterized as dependent personality disorder. Uh, The second type was passive-aggressive type. So you could have the passive-aggressive type of passive-aggressive personality disorder. And this type was characterized as someone who was pouty, someone who was stubborn, someone who was inefficient, and someone who was prone to procrastination and obstruction. This was basically the military definition. So the passive-aggressive type of passive-aggressive personality disorder is the military description, the one that the military was concerned with, you know, uh, military guys who are not good at their jobs or who are obstructing orders and that kind of stuff. And then the third type that was described in the first DSM was the aggressive type. This type was characterized as someone who was irritable, destructive, and resentful with an underlying dependency, which is important. You know, it's similar to antisocial personality disorder, but with an underlying dependency on other people. That's, that's important. Okay, so the aggressive type is of passive-aggressive personality disorder it was basically someone that was just more overt with their uh, opposition to other people. They were smart at this time. You know, whenever I read old stuff on personality, I just think they knew so much more back then, But because we just don't talk about it that much anymore. But they were smart in 1952 to lump dependency and passive aggression together, because they really go hand in hand. You You, you, you can't have a passive-aggressive personality unless you have... Some sort of dependency issue or attachment injury of some kind, so uh, now when I say dependency i don't mean healthy dependency as in because it's it's healthy to be dependent on other people what i'm talking when I say dependent personality or you know that that kind of language i'm referring to pathological de- dependency meaning that you are overly dependent you don't trust other people, you, you have attachment, insecurity, that kind of stuff. Okay. So the first DSM is published in 1952. Passive-aggressive personality disorder instantly becomes an extremely popular diagnosis within psychiatry. In fact, in the 1950s, studies found that passive-aggressive personality disorder was dis- was diagnosed more frequently than any other DSM personality disorder the prevalence was found to be anywhere from 3 to 9% of inpatients and many many more outpatient patients so say 5% of inpatients were diagnosed with this disorder and you know say 20% of of outpatient patients were being diagnosed with this disorder and at the time in the 50s there was no difference in gender rates so equal amount of men had it as women. I'm guessing that the reason why passive aggressive personality disorder was so popular within psychiatry was because of the war and the military. I mean, maybe you know this, but back then everyone was in the war. I mean, not everyone, but a, a really sizable percentage of Americans served in the military during world war two. And a lot of the professionals did too. A lot of the psychiatrists served in the war. And so they come back from the war and you just sort of think like a military person, right? And so you start... And one of the biggest concerns during World War II was insubordination and this so-called passive-aggressive behavior. And so in the 50s, this this tendency to, to look and pathologize this toast acting-like-a-boy behavior is is... You know, it it's just sort of in the air, because it, it doesn't seem as relevant today. It doesn't seem as as important in the current zeitgeist to find people who don't follow orders to be pathological. In a in some ways, in the United States right now, our culture actually rewards opposition to the establishment, which was not the case in 1952. Anyway. Uh, but it's hard to tell, because whenever we look back through the lens of history, it's hard to tell what's going on. I mean, it's, were more people actually suffering from this disorder back then? You know, it's hard to know, maybe, maybe but it's just interesting to, to read about this stuff. Now, I should say that this label of passive-aggressive personality disorder was probably used to oppress people, as was many of the DSM diagnoses, and to this day, still. it. It, there seem to be some accounts that passive aggression was used as a label to pathologize housewives who weren't obeying their husbands, or men who weren't following their you know orders from their boss. Uh, you know their privileged, rich boss who's telling them what to do, and they're not following their orders. They might get diagnosed with passive aggressive personality disorder, or people who were just trying to fight the establishment. The establishment, as we might call it, the man, shall we call it, has always used the DSM as a weapon against people who get in the man's way. And passive-aggressive personality disorder was a perfect diagnosis for them. They could instantly pathologize anyone who was not following their orders. They could instantly say, there's something pathological about you. The fact that you're not following my orders indicates that you are a broken human being. Having said that, I'm guessing that many of the people who were given the label of passive aggressive personality disorder would be seen by contemporary clinicians as actually suffering from that disorder. But again, it's hard to tell. All right. Skipping forward to 1957, Singer and Shaw had a had a study and they wrote about passive or I don't know if it was a study or they just wrote about passive aggressive personality disorder. But anyway, Singer and Shaw, 1957, they described one particular passive aggressive man in the military as quote, surly complaining, procrastinating, and implying that other people are treating him badly. Unquote. So again, surly complaining, procrastinating, and implying that other people are treating him badly, unquote. So in some ways you could you could look at that and be like, huh, well, okay, he's being surly, what who cares? But another way if you've ever dealt with one of these people, it can be actually really frustrating. So, but again, more on that later. Singer and Shaw also wrote that, quote, beneath his veneer of courteousness, the passive aggressive character is deeply hostile, unquote. So this is perhaps the, the key conceptualization here, the key character, uh, uh, characteristic of passive aggressive personality. Again, quote, beneath his veneer of courteousness, the passive aggressive character is deeply hostile that's an important thing if you don't if you haven't already picked up on it that's an important core uh, quality that will be the through line through this entire discussion beneath a, a veneer of courteousness and niceness is a, a deep a deeply hostile person okay they started to discuss how this behavior affects other people, particularly other military men. So this is when we start hearing more nuance. So instead of just like, ah, he's being surly, he's passive aggressive. It was more like, well, when there are people who are oppositional or stubborn, but, and their stubbornness doesn't frustrate other people as much as the stubbornness of passive aggressive people will frustrate other people if that makes sense. So, you know, we've all been stubborn in our life, right? We've all been like, ah, "I don't feel like doing it." Well, that sort of stubbornness, if it if it isn't from a place of pass, passive aggressive personality, you know, it'll bother other people. But when passive aggressive personality people are stubborn, it, it's very, very ag- aggravating and annoying to people because of the way that the energy around it, which I'll get into more later. So this is when they start talking about one of the diagnostic features of passive aggressive personality is the way it affects other people. You can't just look at the individual and diagnose them. You actually have to ask people around them, how do, how do they affect you and how do you feel about them? Okay, so 1950s. Other research found that passive aggression accounted for six percent of all admissions to army hospitals, and th- so that's just inpatient. And of course, many uh, a higher percentage of outpatient patients, which we don't know. But so anyway, a lot of people were being admitted to army hospitals with passive aggressive personality. And just just think about that for a second. Six percent of all admissions to army hospitals were people with passive aggressive personality. So this so you know 6% of all admissions. So this includes depression, uh, PTSD, anxiety, schizophrenia, you know, and I don't even, I, I, I I forget. I don't I don't know if this even includes medical problems. Uh, I'm guessing it doesn't, but anyway. So it was it was a very common thing that was being talked about and labeled. Looking back, it doesn't seem likely that so many military men actually suffered from this personality disorder. It's probably more likely that the diagnosis was being applied to men who were just merely disobeying orders for one reason or another. Okay, 1968. DSM-2 comes out. At this point, we start to see a lot of infighting within the psychiatric community regarding what passive-aggressive personality disorder is. The fighting actually got really ugly as the authors of dsm2 were trying to come to an agreement and and they have records of the of this fighting the uh they actually because they would fight publicly and and they would write things and publish things attacking each other so you had some people who were very pro the construct and you had people who were very against the contract and Construct and people who wanted to change the construct. And there was just a lot of fighting. And at one point, uh, some of the people who were fighting were actually diagnosing each other with passive aggressive personality disorder or oppositional defiant disorder. So they, you know, they would (laughs) say, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, you know, Mr. Johnson, in, you know, since he suffers from oppositional defiant disorder, clearly cannot see, uh, you know, clearly he is pathologically defiant and therefore should not be trusted in this debate regarding passive aggressive personality disorder. So, you know, just imagine that, imagine people writing the DSM fighting in that way. Whenever I hear stuff like this, I I always, I always, I, I get a strange feeling of, of, um, I don't know, gratification or relief. I I feel, I feel kind of relieved when I hear stuff like this, because generally speaking, the way that I think, if I just, if I just think intuitively and particularly when you talk to other people, the sense is, is that today is a very bad time that we live in a very dangerous time when everyone's fighting all the time and, there's all this political strife and there's wars and crime. And there's, you just, you know, if you just think intuitively, you think, well, in the good old days, they didn't have stuff like this. But the more I study history, the more I realize humans are humans and they have always been fighting and they've always been committing crimes and they've always been evil and they've always been good. And they, you know, so when I, when I read stuff like, like the DSM two authors, uh, unethically and aggressively diagnosing each other because they're disagreeing about something in the DSM, I think to myself, yeah, well, you wouldn't see that today. I mean, you, you'll, see, you'll see debates and you'll see heated arguments, but you're not going to see that, uh, at least to my knowledge. Anyway, all right. So in DSM 2, they dropped the subtypes. They dropped the passive dependent type and they dropped the aggressive type. So there were no longer three types of passive-aggressive personality disorder. There was just one type. And it was, de- it was defined in DSM-2 pretty similarly, but, but a little different. It included criteria that said that people with passive-aggressive personality disorder have a hidden motivation of, of hostility and defiance that manifests as passive-aggressive behavior. Quote, This behavior commonly reflects hostility which the individual feels he dare not express openly. Unquote. So this this hidden motivation fueled the controversy regarding passive aggressive personality disorder, since it was impossible to verify that a patient had a secret motivation. I mean, the whole definition of a secret motivation is that a secret you don't know it's there. So how how do you endorse that that symptom of this disorder? It's you know the authors of the DSM typically try to remain behavioral and. Uh, you know, coding or observing behavior in their criteria, so that you can ob- so that you can actually confirm a symptom by observation. If you have criteria about a quote unquote hidden motivation, then that is relying on the opinion of the clinician only, and so that makes it hard to make it seem legitimate. Now, it could be argued. That all criteria, even the behavioral criteria of the DSM, relies on the opinion of the clinician, but that's a story for a whole other podcast. So DSM-2, it also included the following, quote, Often the behavior is one expression of the patient's resentment at failing to find gratification in a relationship with an individual or institution upon which he is over-dependent, unquote. So again, I'll just, I just want to read this again. Often the behavior is one expression of the patient's resentment at failing to find gratification in a, in a relationship with an individual or institution upon which he is overly dependent, unquote. So this fueled the controversy during the development of DSM-2 because it was pathologizing people, basically, who could be in a bad marriage or at a bad job. You know, if you're in a bad marriage uh, and you feel like you can't and you're dependent on your spouse and you can't express your complaints openly, then you might do so passively. And that doesn't indicate there's something wrong with your character. It just says it's just a circumstance of it's a it's a rational behavior given the situation. You know, in the 1960s, people were just starting to realize that culture played a role in psychiatry. It was a very small voice, but, but it was starting, starting, you know, it was beginning. And so that small voice was speaking out against this criteria, uh, this criterion of, uh, you know, that could be used to oppress people. But anyway, even though the criteria w- were more restrictive than DSM-1, and even though the subtypes were, were removed, it, it would seem as though that would lead to a lower prevalence, but actually, per- passive-aggressive personality disorder was still very popular as a label. Uh, for instance, one study in 1974, which was still under the realm of DSM-2, the study found that 9% of patients were given the label of passive-aggressive personality disorder, This high prevalence provided even more fuel to the controversy because some people were saying that clinicians were using it too liberally. It was like, oh, of course, you're going to you're going to label that person with passive aggressive personality because you always see that in everybody. Okay, skipping forward to 1980, 1980, new wave music, Adamant and uh, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) Anyway, DSM three is published. Again, still tons of infighting regarding passive aggressive personality disorder. There was actually a much larger fight about how extensive the DSM should be in general. Many people were trying to get a lot of disorders into this version. They thought that DSM was was too was too small, it was too short. They need they wanted to put much more. And there were some people that were in charge of the DSM who were like, no, let's let's keep this manual short. Let's not make it huge. In the end, the DSM-3 be- actually did become much larger than DSM-2. Uh, to be specific, DSM-2 was 134 pages, and DSM-3 became 494 pages. So DSM-3 was three times the size as DSM-2. And of course... You clinicians know out there today that the newest edition DSM-5 is even is even bigger. It's like I think it's like 700-800 pages or something. Regarding the fight about passive aggressive personality disorder, at first, the people who hated the disorder managed to get rid of it altogether. They got they they in DSM-3, they managed to strike it from the record. The if for instance the first draft of DSM-3 didn't even have the disorder listed in it. The reason why they got rid of it was because they thought that passive-aggressive personality disorder was not an actual personality disorder. They thought it was just a label being used to pathologize people who were being overpowered or oppressed, which was true. They provided an example that Gandhi would have qualified for the diagnosis because he was passively hostile to the British Empire. So that small voice that began earlier that was starting to look at how culture affects the way we diagnose people, this small voice had become more prevalent. And these people actually got passive aggressive personality uh, removed from the DSM, but the fighting continued and continued. And in the end, the passive aggressive personality disorder was included in DSM three, but it was almost removed back then. But to address the concerns about passive aggressive personality disorder they tried to make it more specific so it wouldn't be used to pathologize people it was defined more narrowly it was defined as someone who indirectly resists external demands again indirectly resists but you know that's just another way of putting what we've already been saying Um, again as a manifestation of procrastinating dawdling i like that word dawdling being stubborn being intentionally inefficient and forgetful. So it's that they're adding the word intentionally inefficient. So in the past, if you were just simply inefficient, you could be diagnosed with this, but they're saying here, it's like, no, it's intentional inefficiency. And it occurred even under circumstances in which the self-assertive and effective behavior was possible. So this is a key distinction. You know, they're saying it, if, if, being assertive is possible in this situation and the person is choosing not to be assertive they're choosing to be passive then that's an important element that needs to be present but if they're in a situation where they can't be assertive in a in a you know flexible open way then you can't really label them with passive aggressive personality disorder because They might be being passive merely because that's just the situation they're in. This is a key distinction. You know, in the military, being assertive was probably not available to you. Therefore, you can't apply the label to someone who exists within a system that doesn't allow for healthy assertive behavior. So supposedly, this criterion would exclude people who did not fit the description. DSM-3 also imposed a very unusual exclusion criterion on passive-aggressive personality disorder that uh, said that you can't diagnose someone with this if they if they have another personality disorder. <clears throat> it was the only personality disorder with this criterion. So if someone had borderline, you couldn't also give them passive-aggressive personality disorder. If they had narcissistic personality disorder, you couldn't also give them passive-aggressive personality disorder. It also couldn't coincide with oppositional defiant. Again, presumably this was added so that the diagnosis would not be applied so liberally to people. Well, their efforts worked, actually. So it seemed that all this fighting resulted in a sort of compromise. The new criteria for dsm three drastically reduced its prevalence. For instance, in a 1986 study, it was diagnosed Passive-aggressive personality disorder was diagnosed in 2% of the entire uh, inpatient sample, which again, in the past, we would have figures like 6 or 9%. And they also found, according to the study, that if the exclusion criteria weren't present, the psychiatrist would have diagnosed 14% of the patient's with passive-aggressive personality disorder. So because of the exclusion criteria, the prevalence went from, in this one study, went from 14 down to 2%. So so it was working to limit the amount of people who were being applied this label. But (laughs) this just escalated the fighting among clinicians and among the authors of the DSM because many clinicians were really, really upset because they felt that they were being unreasonably hindered by these exclusion criteria. According to them, there were people who actually suffered from passive-aggressive personality disorder, but they were not allowed to apply the label because of these weird criteria. So fast forward to 1987, just seven years after DSM-3 came out. The next DSM came out is it's called DSM 3R. It's the revised edition of DSM 3. Often in between, uh, they'll have a revised edition. They'll be like, uh there's a couple screw ups here that we need to we need to alter." Think of it like when your when your operating system updates. <laughs> it's it's sort of like that, um, except you have to pay another hundred dollars to buy a new book. But anyway. Uh, again, still more fighting and another massive overhaul on the definition. The criteria were expanded. <laughs> the criteria were no longer focused only on specific resistance, resistant behaviors, but now also include other behaviors like sulking, unjustifiable, uh, protesting, obstruction, unreasonable criticisms, resentful of you know being told what to do an inflated appraisal of one's own productivity. So some sort of distorted view of your own productivity. And the exclusion criteria were eliminated. You could diagnose someone with passive aggressive personality disorder as being comorbid with another personality disorder. As a result, the prevalence shot back up again. And again, still the same rates for men and women, as I said earlier. But again, the infighting continued. Some said passive aggressive personality disorder was not a valid disorder. Others said the symptoms lacked clarity. Um, there was, they would say there was poor reliability among the assessment methods. They would say there was poor discrimination from other disorders, meaning that you couldn't tell the difference really between passive aggressive personality disorder and say dependent personality. There was you couldn't you could there was there was so much overlap that it seemed unnecessary to have this and the DSM, which there's some validity to that for sure. People were saying there wasn't enough research on passive aggressive personality. So we can't really include something that we just don't really understand yet. But honestly, that could be said about a lot of personality disorders. So, but again, so the fighting was going on and on. All right. 1994 DSM four comes out. This is the DSM that I bought because I became uh, graduate student, nineteen ninety five. The authors were still fighting, of course, about whether or not to include the personality disorder in this version of the DSM. The fighting has been going on now for you know, see. So started with DSM two and in uh, when was DSM two <laughs> in sixty eight. So throughout the sixties, seventies, eighties, and nineties, there was just ongoing fighting. They, uh, during the development of dsm 4 apparently they couldn't come to an agreement. One side wanted to keep it and the other side wanted to get rid of it. And there was a stalemate. But they needed to get the damn DSM published. So they struck a bargain. And the bargain was that passive-aggressive personality disorder would be moved to the appendix. The, the appendix of the DSM is a place where you have a bunch of diagnoses that are not official diagnoses, but they are worthy enough of consideration for further study, or maybe it'll be—it's sort of like uh, a a way station for diagnoses on their way out of the DSM, or perhaps on their way into the DSM. So the DSM puts a passive-aggressive personality disorder in the appendix, so that people so that the people who want to keep it, they're satisfied, kind of, and the people who want to get rid of it, they're also satisfied, kind of. But in the end, what happened was, because they put it in the appendix, this basically killed the diagnosis, because after dsm four came out, clinicians pretty, pretty quickly stopped using the diagnosis altogether. Incidentally, uh, in DSM 4, they changed the name to passive aggressive negativistic personality disorder. So it's the longest, <laughs> it's probably the longest disorder in the DSM, longest worded one. Ironically, uh, many people actually like this version. <laughs> you know, they change they changed the the definition in DSM 4. And many people are like, actually, so it seemed as though just as it was about to have a, a good description that a lot of people could agree upon. It was being marginalized. Um, okay. So DSM four, how did they describe it? Passively resisting and fulfilling routine, social and occupational tasks. Uh, other adjectives being sullen, being irritable, being impatient, being argumentative, being cynical, being skeptical and being contrary. They say that because of their negativism and tendency to externalize blame, they often criticize and voice hostility toward authority figures with minimal provocation, meaning that they're quick to be angry and blame authority figures. They are also envious and resentful of peers who succeed and who are viewed positively by authority figures. So this is interesting, it's getting more into their feelings. These individuals often complain about their personal misfortunes. They have a negative view of the future and may make comments such as, it doesn't pay to be good, and good things don't last. They often complain about being misunderstood and unappreciated by others. They express envy and resentment toward those apparently more fortunate than them. They will voice exaggerated and persistent complaints of personal misfortune, and they will alternate between hostile defenses and obeying everybody. So this description is fine, but it's really only one particular kind of, of a passive aggressive person. In my opinion, it's, it's probably a description of the somewhat overt type of passive-aggressive personality disorder, which I'll get into more later. Um, again, in, according to my conceptualization, you have the super-passive type, and then you have the somewhat overt type of passive-aggressive personality. And it seems like the DSM-IV kind of was edging toward the more somewhat overt type. But honestly, in my experience, the somewhat overt type, which is described in DSM-IV, is actually much more benign than the, um, or much more uh, benign, yeah. It's much more easier to get along with than the super passive type. The super passive type of progressive, uh, of passive aggressive personality is is extremely destructive to people around them. But anyway, I'll get more into that later. A study at the time after DSM-IV came out found that anywhere from 0% to 12% of the general population met criteria for this disorder, and they, they did studies around the world. So in some ways, the new criteria caused a huge drop in the use of this label and by its marginalization to the appendix. But... In some communities and countries, it was still actually being used just as much, if not more than before. So there's a lot of variance around the world. Okay, skipping forward to 2013, DSM-5 comes out. And again, still fighting about it. And the people who wanted to get rid of it, they won the battle. They won the war. It's passive aggressive personality disorder is not included at all in DSM five, not even in the appendix. It was slowly put out of its misery. (laughs) It's officially dead. And I don't hear anyone talking about this disorder. Uh, Since I've been preparing for this episode, I've been asking colleagues around me if, you know, what do they know about passive aggressive personality? And they're just like, um, you know, they just, people just don't talk about it anymore. Now, you know, that's my circle. Maybe other people are talking about it more in other circles, but but you don't hear about it. So why was it excluded from DSM-5? Well, here are the reasons in, in my opinion. There was just too much controversy over the years, obviously. For decades upon decades, there was just all this fighting. And also, it has a known history of being used to label people who have a legitimate reason for being oppositional, like abused spouses or people in the military or someone at a workplace that is being harmful to the employees the label of passive aggressive personality was being applied to people like that so that was another reason for getting rid of it in DSM5 also passive aggressive personality disorder has been found to be extremely comorbid with other personality disorders Therefore, one might consider it to be just a feature of other disorders. You know, you could have borderline with passive aggression, or you could have dependent personality disorder with some passive aggressive tendencies. You know, if for example, just another example, let's say the DSM had this disorder called fast heart rate anxiety disorder. So if you came across someone who had a fast heart rate when they got anxious, you would give them this this label, well, in all likelihood, you would also give them a label of a specific phobia or social phobia or generalized anxiety or something, and the fast heart rate would be very comorbid with some other anxiety disorder, so you would say well you don't you can't have fast heart rate disorder that fast heart rate is just a symptom of." one of the anxiety disorders you a a more coherent way of seeing this is just label them with the anxiety disorder and say one of the symptoms happens to be fast heart rate well that's what they're saying about passive aggressive personality disorder which is like it's just a symptom of one of the other personality disorders so uh, why not just see it that way anyway Another reason why it got uh, excluded from DSM-5 is there's just not enough attention in the field of all the different personality disorders and all the ver- different access one disorders. Not a lot of people were interested in this disorder for various reasons. And so, uh, so that was another reason why they got rid of it. If there was more interest, they probably would have considered keeping it. Also, the definition is too narrow it could be considered to be just one defense mechanism, even not even just a symptom of another personality disorder, but it could, you could consider passive aggressive behavior as just one defense mechanism that everyone is capable of exhibiting. But I actually don't agree with that, but that's one argument. I, incidentally, I actually wish it was included in the DSM, but I wish it was just described better and better understood in in our community. Because I do think that there are people who suffer from a very specific condition called passive-aggressive personality, which I'll get into more later. But anyway. Um, also, one of the reasons why it was excluded was because, as I was talking about earlier, part of the definition of the disorder involved the underlying motivation of someone's behavior. You know, the, 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 they, they were people with passive aggressive personality are being oppositional because they have a hidden motivation of hostility, which is impossible to assess. So, uh, you know, it might've been excluded because of that reason too. To me, I think it was killed because ultimately killed because there were just too many cooks in the kitchen, (laughs) too many cooks, too many cooks. Some people wanted the disorder to refer to people who secretly hated all authority and who used passive aggression to get back at them. Other people wanted passive aggressive personality disorder to refer to people who were always negative about everything, particularly authority. Other people wanted the disorder to refer to people who were pathologically defiant and oppositional. And other people wanted the disorder to refer to people who were, who were being overly dependent and unable to be assertive and in some ways these are all very different syndromes and when you get and when you get proponents of each construct trying to trying to pull the label into their camp you get a lot of different criteria over the years which we can see and you also get a lot of angry people and you also get a lot of outsiders going what the hell there's something wrong with this disorder in a way i almost wish that they kept the three types from the original dsm because i think it, that might have actually saved it. If you had those three different groups, you might have been able to uh, not have so much fighting because you wouldn't have everyone pulling in all these different directions. Anyway, okay, so that's the history. What's the prevalence today? Well, recent research has found that the prevalence is similar to other personality disorders, which is about 1% or 2% of the population. Passive aggressive personality disorder has been found to be twice as likely uh, to happen in teens so if you're so among the uh, among the ri- the the risk rate of having it teenagers have twice the risk as adults and again no difference among gender okay i'm going to rattle off all the various symptoms and uh hopefully in this long list of symptoms like you'll you'll hear you'll hear things you've heard already but it'll just kind of give you a general gestalt of this overall syndrome and then i'll get into some specific cases that i hope will make it easier to understand but anyway different so you you can't have a episode about passive aggressive personality disorder without just listing all the goddamn symptoms and so here we go (laughs) Intense conflict between dependence and, assert- and self-assertion. So again, intense conflict in, in themselves between being dependent on people and, and being assertive with people. Disguised anger or passive anger. They're, they're oppositional. They're uncooperative. They don't want to do things that others ask of them. They are passively oppositional by acting inept or acting confused or, or being, you know, intentionally forgetful. These people can be stubborn. If someone gives them a gift, they might actually hate the fact that they were given a gift because now they owe a gift in return and, and they feel stubborn about that. It's like, I don't want to give that person a gift. Why did he give me a gift? Uh, people with passive aggressive personality will give incomplete answers when they are secretly upset so they're they're when you when they're hurt on the inside and you ask them a question they might resort to answering extremely briefly or they won't respond at all or they'll say a lot of I don't know partially because they're hurt and they don't know what to say but also partially because they actually want to punish you by essentially giving you a silent treatment, it's not like super conscious to the individual, but it is somewhat conscious to them. They're they're being purposely quiet because it'll, they know it'll piss you off, and so that's that's passive aggression. But it won't seem like overt aggression. It'll just be like, why aren't you talking? Why are you saying I don't know all the time? Well. Part of it is because they actually secretly want you to be pissed off because they not because they're sadistic, but just because they don't know any other way to assert their their needs. And so they kind of resort to this weird way of asserting their needs, but it doesn't actually work anyway. Um, they they can't decide whether or not to focus on other people's needs so that they can gain acceptance from other people or to focus on their own needs. So they're, they're in a constant battle between whether or not to be subservient to people or oppositional. Now, if you're hearing this, hopefully you're hearing a third option, which is, which is to be neither subservient or oppositional and to just have a healthy flexibility in life. But, but they don't understand how to do that. So they're always going back and forth between complete subservience and dependence and complete opposition and, and aggression. Uh, and usually that aggression is, is passive or hidden or, you know, covert. They are usually sensitive to things going wrong. They're easily frustrated and angry. They can become pessimistic. Not all people with passive aggressive personality have these things, but, but say the, the somewhat overt type will have these, these things. They're, they get frustrated. They get angry. They're pessimistic. They're cantankerous. They can often be in a bad mood. They can be spiteful and malicious. They will tend to emphasize when things go wrong. They might even have temper tantrums. And they will believe that everyone else has an easy life when their life is really hard. Now, again, for the super passive types, you won't see this. The, none, this will all be inside of them, but you'll never, you'll never see the light of day of it. It'll, it'll never see the light of day. Uh, people with passive-aggressive personality are often moody. They're often critical of others, but not always. Deep down, they feel very cheated, and they feel misunderstood, and they feel unappreciated, and they might even feel unloved. People with passive-aggressive personality always have low self-esteem. It's one of the central features. They feel like a failure. They feel as though there's something wrong with them deep down, and they're very shameful. People with passive-aggressive personality might sulk now, again, this is the this is the somewhat overt type, but they might sulk openly and whine or grumble and they they will they will bring other people down with them. That's the point. They're not just sulking or grumbling for their own sake. They're actually they're actually trying to drag other people into their circle, not because they're sadistic, but because they're trying to get connection with other people and they don't know how to do that in other ways. People with past aggressive personality can actually be um, genuinely guilty for doing things, so they're not always distorted. They they can they can have moments of clarity. People with past aggressive personality are often suicidal, which coincides with their mistreatment history as a child, and also their their you know they're frequently depressed, not because they have a organic depression problem, but because they're in a constant state of feeling as though they're being treated unfairly, which is depressing, which will chronic if if chronic, will lead to you feeling suicidal as a way of getting out of that. Um, they might also have exaggerated or even imagined health issues. This is an interesting one. So for many people with not 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 everyone, but for some people with passive and I've seen this, for some people with passive aggressive personality, You'll, if you know someone like this, you'll hear them complaining a lot about fairly serious medical problems. And although they might be legitimate because they might actually have medical problems, sometimes people with passive-aggressive personality will actually invent medical problems as a way of of, of kind of exhibiting that the world is unfair to them. Or they might be slightly delusional about having a medical problem because they just feel like the world is unfair. And they just feel like, of course they have some sort of medical problem and it'll be some sort of medical problem that it's hard to uh, see or, or confirm, you know, they're not going to say that they have a broken arm or something because that's obvious, but it'll be things like irritable bowel syndrome or MS or, headaches or migraines or some, something that is, it's just hard to nail down. Now, this isn't to say that they don't have these things because they very well could, but I have seen people with passive aggressive personality advertise that they have certain medical problems when they actually didn't have medical problems. Okay. People with passive aggressive personality, because they are dependent, they are often indecisive and they might have a lot of fluctuating attitudes. They might be fairly, quote-unquote, needy or clingy. They might come across as being very helpless and in need of advice. But, okay, so that's the long list of, of symptoms. But in a nutshell, most contemporary authors will define the core features of past aggressive personality as a resistance to fulfilling expectations. So you're someone expects you to do something and and you just resist it quietly. In other words, passive aggressive people will continually disappoint other people and have bad excuses for not fulfilling their promises. They might feel like victims or martyrs. They might feel like they're always being treated unfairly. They might disappoint others by uh, just not, you know, uh, following through, they might advertise the fact that they're upset by sighing a lot, or sulking, or grumbling. But again, they're secretly hostile towards other people. They have inner hostility towards other people, and they're often pretty secretive about it. And they they have particular problems with authority figures, and they will passively oppose and frustrate them through subtle ways. And by authority figures, I'm you know the obvious ones are like your parents or your boss at work or a police officer or something, or a politician for that matter. But your spouse is also kind of a authority over you because you have to, you have rules for each other, you know, like don't sleep with other people. And so people with passive aggressive personality will react against their spouses as if their spouse is an unfair rule maker. Um, So just to get kind of micro on specific classic passive aggressive behavior, someone might say a mean joke. And then right after that, just say, just kidding, you know, you're like, you're at a dinner party and someone says something super racist or they say something super sexist at the dinner party. And then right after that, they're just like, geez, I'm just joking. (laughs) You know, that's passive aggression because overtly they're saying, hey, I'm just joking but their behavior is actually harming other people so that's that's classic passive aggressive behavior and this person will sometimes be able to pull this off and get everyone on their side because people who are smart and people who engage in passive aggressive behavior their entire life they get really good at being able to express hostility with and being and they get very good at being able to mask it so often they will do these things and no one will even know they, people will have their feelings hurt and they'll feel afraid and you know, they'll have all the results of, of aggression and hostility being bestowed upon them, but they'll, they'll have no idea why they feel that way or they'll have no idea how to attribute that feeling to the behavior of the passive aggressive person. That this is what makes it a personality disorder. It's not just like someone being a dick and being passive about it. It's, It's throughout their personality and it's a persistent ongoing thing that they engage in and they become very good at it. Um, Another classic passive aggressive behavior is the silent treatment or saying, I don't know. These are very effective ways at being passively aggressive. You know, you're talking with your client who's passive aggressive and you ask them a question and they just, they just look at you and you say, I don't know. Now on the surface, the, the client is just saying, I don't know, but deep down, but the result is that you as a therapist feel really shitty about that. Now, this isn't to say that everyone who says, I don't know in therapy is being passive aggressive, but I hope you get my point. Anyway, another classic passive aggressive behavior is procrastinating, uh, that is motivated by stubbornness. You might ask them to do something for you and they will happily agree to do it. But then they either do it after you ask them a hundred more times or they never do it. But again, these people never o- overtly communicate that they don't want to do it. So you'll ask them, you know, say, Hey, could you mow the lawn? And they're like, yeah, sure. I'll do that. And then, you know, the next day it's not done. Next day it's not done. And you come to me and say, so were you going to, mow the line. You're like, oh yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, I was going to do it. And you know, next day it's not done. Next day it's not done. And you're getting, you're feeling hurt. You're feeling angry. You're feeling disrespected. And you go back to the person, you're like, so were you going to do it? And the person might be like, well, I don't know. You're kind of nagging me about this. And so the, the person deep down, it want right from the get-go wants to say, fuck you i'm not mowing the lawn that's what they want to say <laughs> they want to just say no i'm not going to mow the lawn but because they are so worried about their attachments they they can't they feel like they can't say that and so instead they will comply openly but deep down that they are very angry about even being asked to do it but they'll never express that anger all right um another classic the final classic passive aggressive behavior is that they'll disguise criticism in some way a classic example of this and me and my friends used to say this to each other as jokes when we were in high school but uh, a classic example of this is even though everyone else says you're stupid i think you're really smart (laughs) we used to make fun of each other in high school this way it's like you know you know everyone else tells me that you are a very smelly, gross person, but I think you're actually, you know, pretty clean. So this is a classic passive aggressive behavior. So on the surface, you know, I'm saying you're smart, but what I'm also communicating is everyone else thinks you're stupid. And I want you to know that everyone thinks you're stupid, but I think you're smart. (laughs) So that's another passive aggressive. All right. Let's get into some common presentations here. Hopefully, these these full stories will help you understand what this disorder looks like in real life. Okay, <clears throat> I'll start with an example of the super passive type. This is someone that I worked with a long time ago, and I think she would have qualified for the super passive type of passive-aggressive personality disorder. This was many years ago at a job I worked at this is actually before I became a therapist and I remember her very well because she was actually quite traumatizing to me at the time. Everyone considered her to be the nicest person on the planet. I thought of her as the nicest person on the planet. Whenever she saw you, she made sure to compliment you. She was extremely thoughtful very conscientious you could tell she you know remembered your conversations and was thinking about you everyone loved her and i did too um whenever i saw her she would make these super obvious gestures to compliment me she'd say you know she'd say something about my work or or she'd compliment what i was wearing or uh, she would compliment if I'd lost weight or something. You know, I, I don't remember specifically, but she remembered a lot of very obvious, uh, somewhat over-the-top gestures to compliment me. She might even, when I was within earshot, she might tell stories about me, about how great I was. And she just she just always knew what to say to make other people feel appreciated or something. Uh, Appreciate is not the right word. I think complimented is really the best word. It's just, you just felt like when she said something like you are the best driver, you're just so good at driving it. You know, it's not appreciation. It's more just like there's something good about you that she's being very communicative about. <laughs> and, she was also super maternal and very motherly. She treated everyone, including me, like everyone was her child. It was just the way she talked to people. She was very uh, sing-songy when she would talk to you, and she she just had a very motherly demeanor towards others. I don't know if this is a, this isn't indicative of passive. So, by the way, as before, I go on. I just want to emphasize that. This is but one example, but it's a common example, and I think it describes how specific this disorder is, and that how you can't just look at passive-aggressive behavior and say, "Oh, the person has passive-aggressive personality disorder." The disorder will affect a lot more than just that sort of behavior. So, anyway, but this is just one presentation. They're, humans are complex, and there's a there's a fair amount of variance within this disorder. And I'll get into some other presentations too. But anyway. So again, at first, I thought she was the nicest, bestest person on the planet. But as I got to know her, I started feeling really uneasy around her. She gave off this really anxious vibe. And I felt I found myself feeling really unsafe around her, but I couldn't tell why. And I figured that it must be me and I must be going crazy because everyone knew that she was the nicest person on the planet. And so there must be something wrong with me, I figured. And this is very common. People with personality disorders tend to make me, in particular, I think, but other people do. They tend to make people feel really unsafe and uneasy. Uh, for me, it's not so much clients with personality disorders about people in my personal life. I'm totally fine with personality disordered clients because I've gotten used to that. But when I encounter someone with a personality disorder outside of therapy, particularly if they're in a position of power around me, I almost always feel unsafe and uneasy. It's It's not a good feeling. And she definitely made me feel this way. It was very unsettling. But I couldn't... I could not tell why I was feeling that way at first. So... As I got to know her, I started seeing more of her personality, and it became clear to me that she was extremely anxious, but not only just anxious, but socially anxious. She was terrified of disapproval, particularly from authority figures. And I realized that she was even sort of paranoid about everything. Whenever anything bad happened or there was a hint of something bad happening, she would announce that the world was coming to an end. But she would announce this while remaining super nice to everyone. So whenever it, she was a very, the sky is falling sort of a person. And it felt very strange to me. She had a way of communicating that I, it was very convincing at first. When, when, so for the first you know portion of time that I knew her, I was very convinced by the things she said. But as I started to get to know her better, and as I started really thinking about the things she was saying almost everything she said if looked at a certain way had a certain strange quality to it a sort of fakeness to it a sort of like just insincerity or some or forcefulness you know when if someone comes to you and says i love your outfit today that is i just love that where did you get that outfit so, okay the first time someone says that to you you're like oh about uh, you know, you're going to take it. Well, imagine every day for three months, the same person, every time they see you, says the exact same thing to you. Eventually, you're going to be like, I mean, pretty quickly within, you know, a few days, you're going to be like, um, you, but, but what do you say to someone like that? You know, you can't say like, stop complimenting me. So it puts you in this really weird position, you know, and especially if in, if it's in the context of a greater social arena what are you going to do in front of everyone just say stop complimenting me you know it's like then you're the dick right so this is the way she made me feel it was it she made me feel it was very very strange um and by the way given her social anxiety about her superior she was extremely complimentary to her boss to our boss she would Also, go out of her way to make sure that everyone knew how subservient she was to our boss. At first, I thought, wow, she's just really polite and formal. But I was, again, because I was starting to detect something weird as I got closer to her, I was beginning to wonder if all of her compliments and all of her niceness was just some sort of roundabout way of of coping with her anxiety you know, so again they, if there's something feels insincere about this, and I wonder if it's just because she's terrified and she's just complimenting, complimenting everyone because it's a way of her to cope with her anxiety. So I started to wonder if that's what was going on, but it was really more than just people want, you know, uh, her wanting people to like her when she was complimenting people. There just seemed to be this sort of strange en- energy around it 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 felt as if she felt it felt as if she felt as though people were out to hurt her somehow she it she it wasn't just social anxiety it, it almost felt like she was walking around in this constant state of panic about someone harming her and all of her super niceness was was a tactic to get people to not hurt her i noticed that when there was the slightest bit of tension between her and me. She would instantly compliment me. It was, it was really weird. Like, let's say we were just talking about some minor issue at work and we just kind of slightly disagree (laughs) about something. She would instantly say something like, well, you're probably right because you're really good with that sort of stuff. You know, that she, it, it felt very strange to me. It's like it, it was, I, I remember thinking like, you know, we're just, we're, we're not yelling at each other. We're just, you know, it could be something as simple as, you know, what's your favorite color? And she would say, oh, you know, yellow. And I would say, oh, mine's green. So in that, there's not a conflict, but there's a there's a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of conflict where I'm saying green is the best and she's saying yellow is the best. And she would perceive that as some sort of threat to our relationship. And she would instantly compliment me. She'd be like, Oh yeah, green. Of course you like green. Cause that's just so great. Cause you, you're just, that's a very good color. You, I bet you, you would look great in green. Actually, as I, as I say that, it's like, I'm getting a little bit of PTSD from that because it's like that's exactly the sort of thing she would say and that's how strange it was because and what do you say to that right you can't say stop complimenting me I don't like it you know right you can't say that because that's not it's just not you know who, who does that who says to people stop complimenting me right so now I started actually as again getting to know her better I started hearing rumors that she was actively opposing me behind my back I would hear stories from coworkers like, you know, she told me that you were really stressed out at work lately. And she said that your recent email to everyone was a a result of being really stressed out. So she said, we should ignore your recent email to everybody. So I would hear these, and it would be, I don't remember the exacts because it was decades ago, but there were a lot of these little moments over time where It appeared like she was trying to help me, but in practicality, it was she was actually undermining me. She was actually like ruining my my day. (laughs) But I couldn't yell at her about it because she it it came seemingly from a place of caring from her, you know. So again, you know, in this example that I you know can think of, I don't know if this exactly happened, but she would say. Kirk's been really stressed out lately and you know, he's very stressed out. So that recent email he sent, I think came from a place of stress. So you just don't need to worry about that email. So it seems like, Oh, she's, she's being motherly. She's being caring. She cares about my stress, but why is she telling everyone to ignore my email when I, I really need her to not do that. <laughs> you know, it, it was stuff like that. You know, I would hear a lot of stories like that. and It was super confusing. And again, when I saw her, she'd be super, super nice to my face. But when I would hear these stories, it it, it just didn't feel quite right. Looking back, she was absolutely being passive-aggressive, but I couldn't tell at the time. I it, it just had no—it it, didn't—because it, I was so tricked by her just over-the-top niceness, I, I couldn't conceive of her ever being hostile. So— um, you know, like another time she might say something like everyone in the room was really bothered by you, but I wasn't because you're the best. You're just the best. So she, she actually said something like, I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was something along those lines. (laughs) It was like after, you know, some staff meeting or something, she came up to me and said, uh, someone, you know, I saw that everyone was really upset by you, but, but I wasn't upset by you because I just know that you're the best, but, but I just thought you should know that, you know, some people were bothered, but I wasn't, you, you were just super. And it was really crazy making. And it was really destabling to me because I, I'm kind of a take it fa- as a face value sort of person. I don't, if anything i'm probably too trusting of people and so when she would do stuff like this i'd just be like well okay sounds like she she seems she's coming across as if she's being nice to me but it feels really bad there's something i feel bad about what's going on here and you know for a long time i just felt like i was going crazy and of course i couldn't confide in other people cuz everyone agreed that she was the nicest person on the planet and Another thing about what she would do is she, she would give me this really, really strange advice that felt coercive and pressured, unsolicited advice. She looking back and again, I didn't see it at the time because I just, I thought of her as a super nice person. When I look back, she was, she was often telling me what to do in this really commanding way. It, it came across as maternal, but it, she, there was some sort of malevolence to what she was doing to me when I look back. And, but it's again, so I hope you understand this is classic passive aggressive personality. Me and everyone uh, were 110% agreeing that she was the nicest person on the planet. She wasn't just nice. She was 10 times as nice as the nicest person we knew and everyone loved her. But you had all this really underhanded weird stuff that was happening, and I could not tell that something bad was happening until it got bad, but getting to that and honestly, just remembering this stuff is like I said kind of mildly traumatizing me it's like I can feel my adrenaline pumping a little bit, my hands are sweating because it, it was it was not pleasant. let me just put that it was it was a very it felt very bad around her. It was. It felt scary. It felt unsettling. I think in my mind, I thought, if she's capable of this sort of underhandedness, what else is she capable of? You know, because you just hope that people are basically moral, or at least moral in the same way that you are. And to see this kind of behavior, it's just like, well, if they're capable of that, what else are they capable of? That's always the kind of fear in my mind, anyway. Um. Okay. So I'm I'm all kind of weirded out, and confused, and uh, I tried to cope with it by trying to bond with her. I figured if if maybe we had a good bond, she would stop doing these these kind of weird, underhanded things. And I tried being really nice to her to, to maybe try to make up for whatever she was upset at me about, or because like part of the reason was I would blame myself. I would say, well maybe she's doing these underhanded underhanded things because she feels like she can't approach me and talk with me about it. And so maybe if I'm really nice to her then that will make it so that she can come to me. So so it was like I was blaming myself for this whole thing too, I was saying, "Well, maybe it's my fault that she's doing this." That's how crazy-making passive-aggressive personalities can be. So I'm being nice to her and trying to bond with her and this doesn't work. In fact, <clears throat> it only made it worse actually. Long, long story, not so long. She eventually just snapped. She eventually just went over, went off the deep end. She completely turned on me for some complete unknown reason, and uh, I was, I was being really nice to her because I was scared of her in some ways. I, I there over time I became quite frightened of her, and so I, I just tried to kind of keep my distance and also just be super nice to her. And she just snapped. And all of a sudden she, she just revealed her true colors. It was really dramatic. And she started spreading all these really nasty, weird rumors about me. She, um, I can't remember what she was saying, but it was, it was just like really horrible accusations of the way I was treating her or something. I can't remember exactly what the accusations were, but, but even the accusations were kind of ambiguous you know it wasn't like she said he punched me it'd be like he's been treating me like really badly but she wouldn't have any real really solid anecdotes to say about it she just she it was clear that she felt that i was a monster and that i had been treating her really poorly but she had nothing to back it up with she because i hadn't actually she had enough uh, you know, she, her, she had enough brain power to know not to just make stuff up, but she didn't have enough brain power to realize that her feeling wasn't accurate. And so she just was expressing this feeling and, and it was terrifying to me. It was, you know, v- I, it happened over the span of like a couple of days, this, this blow up and <clears throat> it was extremely stressful for me. I could not sleep at night. Because again, everyone thought of her as a super nice person. Everyone loved her. And so I thought, geez, I'm dead. <laughs> you know, if she comes out accusing me of something, man, I, I am done for. I mean, I'm nice, but I am not that nice. So I'm done for. <clears throat> but then other people started stepping forward and telling their stories about her. And then everything really exploded. She started being completely openly hostile and aggressive and abusive with every with not everybody but a lot of people particularly people close to her and i hate to to admit this but when she exploded like that on other people i felt i felt really relieved because it relieved me of the worry that everyone would think i was some sort of monster (laughs) i was like oh thank god she's treating other people like this because they'll you know they're not going to take her side in fact i found out that she was actually being much more aggressive with other people other than me. It was so weird to learn that all of us were secretly suffering from this person and none of us felt secure enough to talk about it. Well, uh, she was instantly fired because <laughs> she, she became extremely hostile with her, with her boss. Her boss, you know, she quickly fired her. The last I heard, she had moved far out of the area, which makes me wonder if she created the same circumstances at her next job, which is seems likely. So, so that's what it's like to be near someone with passive aggressive personality disorder. It's not just passive behavior; it's much more than that. There, there's a the 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 passive aggressive personality is just, or the passive aggressive behavior is just a symptom of this underlying insecurity and perpetual feelings of, of unfairness. It's similar to borderline in that way. You know, people will say, oh, she she has very intense relationships. Therefore, she's borderline. It's like, well, maybe, but the intense, the intense relationships, you know, the black and white, you know, all bad, all good thinking is just a symptom of the underlying insecurity and trauma, you know, relational trauma of being abandoned, well, the relational trauma for the passive aggressive personality person is they were treated very unfairly as children. Maybe they were abused, maybe their parents well, get more of the causes later, but anyway. So again, it's not just a little oppositional. It's not just a little grumbly. It's a full experience. And once you've experienced it, you'll never forget it. And you'll realize that many people don't really understand the true nature of passive aggressive personality disorder. <clears throat> You know, it's, it's not a simple defense. It's It's a huge thing. So, again, that's one type of presentation of the super passive type, as I'm calling it. Again, she was like that because she was treated extremely unfairly as a child, and she believed that she was fundamentally unworthy of love and attention. So she walked around in a constant state of anxiety and feeling as though others were being unfair to her, a constant state. So with borderline people, they walk around a constant state that they're being abandoned. And for passive-aggressive people, they walk around constantly feeling as though they're being treated unfairly. And all these feelings compelled her to express her feelings somehow, but she couldn't express them in an honest way. She was very hurt and very angry because of her past and she you know, was compelled to express those feelings, but she couldn't express them in an honest way because she worried that people would would reject her, which was her deepest fear. So she would express them covertly. She could get the satisfaction of revenge against me and other people without having to suffer the negative consequences of that revenge. <clears throat> but when she was finally discovered, she panicked and she could no longer contain all of her rage. So she revealed how she truly felt about everyone and then moved to another state. <laughs> she just, she just bounced. I mean, maybe, maybe she's back in the state, but I, I don't, uh, well, I don't know. Who knows? But she, she moved far away anyway, a long time ago. All right. Here's another presentation of the super passive type. This is a made up person, by the way, this is not someone I know, but I'm going to talk about the person as if they're real. Cause it's easier to talk about. All right. This person is a 30-year-old man. When he is asked to give his family history in therapy, he says that his family was good. You know, he'll say, yeah, my parents are very loving. But when you investigate more, you discover that his father was very emotionally distant and his mother was physically abusive in her parenting style. Also, you discover that the mother was scapegoated by the family. Everyone in the family made fun of the mother for various reasons. So this guy, he grows up in a family in which he was mostly terrified of being punished by his mother for things that he didn't feel like he deserved it. And at the same time, he absorbed the point of view of his family system that his mother was some sort of joke and should not be respected. So this is an interesting combination, right? Uh, you have a, a scary, abusive, inconsistent, sort of confusing mother while the whole system considers the mother to be a joke. But you can't treat her like a joke because you, because she could beat you hard. Um, he coped with this abuse by trying to fight back against the mother. But his mother would always win the battle. She would always escalate things. So he eventually decided that it was useless to fight directly. So he started fighting her indirectly through passive-aggressive behavior. For example, he would smile and do his chores. So, yeah, yes, mommy, I'll do the chores. But he wouldn't do the chores very well because he knew this would make his mother really angry. And when his mother reacted, he would act innocent. He also started getting really fascinated with secretiveness, He became as a, as a teenager, just really interested in like what it was like to be a spy or what it was like to be in the CIA. He watched, you know, spy movies and James Bond and that sort of stuff. And he, and he was fascinated with all the gadgets that they had. Now, this fascination was a reflection of his coping mechanism of being secretly hostile against his mother. So because he had developed this very useful coping technique of being secretly hostile towards his mother, he, he generally liked secretive things, and he was attracted to secretive things. He also f- obviously felt that the world was an unfair place. The, the world was an unfair place to him, and he had a deep sense that the world was unfair and that he was in a constant state of, of being treated unfairly. He could never really get what he wanted. His needs were not going to be met. Well, he grows up. He moves out of his parents' house. He retained all the coping skills and the personality traits he had as a child. He got married. At first, his wife was 100% happy with the marriage. But over time, she started feeling really angry and confused and hurt. And she convinced her husband to attend couples therapy. Again, just a reminder, this is not a real person. This isn't a client of mine or something. So they go to a couples therapy, and the wife complains about many things. She says that her husband frequently opposes her for seemingly no reason. For example, when she says that when she talks about something that happened at work, she says that her husband will usually say something that opposes her point of view. So even though there's really no reason to oppose her because she's just you know complaining about work, He will frequently oppose her. You know, he'll say something like, uh, so say she comes home and she says, ah, my boss is being a dick lately. And the husband will always say something like, well, maybe you're just being sensitive, something like that. And then when she reacts to this with hurt and anger, she says, you know, why don't you ever just listen to me? She says that the husband acts like he has no idea why she's so upset, which makes her even more upset, right? She also says the wife says that when she asks her husband to do simple things, like help blow the leaves off the porch or something, he will completely refuse to do it, and it it's illogical. And again, not out of anger, he won't be like "fuck you, I'm not I'm not blowing the leaves." He just just say no, I just don't just don't feel like it, and she will be hurt by this naturally. Since she's like, "Can't you help me do this chore?" And she'll express her hurt, and he'll act like nothing happened. It'll just be like, I don't know why you're so upset. That's very strange to me. She also complains that he doesn't contribute as much to the household expenses, and he expects that his wife will pay most of the bills, even though they both work full-time. She says that he's selfish, and he usually thinks about his own needs first rather than considering her needs as well. So after a few months of therapy the wife uh, comes in and says that she caught him texting with a woman at work. And it comes out that he's been having an affair with this woman at work for the past three years. After the initial shock of this, they continue with couples therapy. And after months of exploration, the husband eventually admits that he started the affair because he was so angry at his wife for the way that his wife treated him. He reveals that he's been having affairs, uh, several affairs, since they started dating 10, 10 years ago, or however long ago. And the wife is just completely shocked. She can't believe that he's been cheating on her this entire time. And she and the therapist start wondering if he's a sociopath or antisocial or psychopath or something. And even as the husband is revealing his affairs... He continues to make it seem like he's the victim, not because he's purposely delusional or psychopathic or something, but because he grew up with a deep sense that he is being treated unfairly. And so he perpetually feels as though he's being treated unfairly, which leads him to feeling hurt and angry, which leads to him feeling alone and sad and he's terrified of expressing this anger because he worries that his wife will abandon him. And due to his attachment injuries, injuries as a child and his dependency you know, issues, he's super terrified about people leaving him. So he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. He has tremendous anger, but he can't express it. So he expresses it covertly by cheating on his wife. But ultimately, the cheating doesn't make him feel better. In fact, it just compounds his low self-esteem which makes him more distant and angry and sad, which perpetuates the whole cycle of shame and dependency and passive aggression. So this is another possible presentation of the super passive type of passive aggressive personality. I don't think I have to present an example of the other type of passive aggressive personality, the somewhat overt type, because it's probably easy to imagine that type, but let me just kind of review them again. They're often openly anti-authority. You really know that they don't like authority. So, in the in the other two examples, the woman at my work, uh, you know, twenty-five years ago, and this made-up uh, husband, neither one of them were openly anti-authority. Neither one of them were openly uh, begrudging of being told what to do. They just would either passively go against authority. Um, Well, that's what they do. They're just like super passive to the point where you had no idea they were doing it. Now, with my coworker, she eventually just got to a point where everything was spinning out of control. And her defense of being passive just wasn't able to keep all of her anger back. And so she was just overtly angry or overtly hostile with people. But with the somewhat overt type, as opposed to the super passive type, with the somewhat overt type of passive aggressive personality, you'll actually see it more. You'll see them sulking. You know, if you if the, if their boss tells them what to do, they'll roll their eyes or they'll kind of grumble about it. And they probably will complain about being nagged. Whenever you hear someone saying, "Ah, oh, they're out," everyone's always nagging me all the time. You know, it's a red flag for passive aggressive personality they will find reasons to oppose they almost never really agree with other people particularly people close to them this this is what's described on the internet when you when you google passive aggressive personality you'll get this somewhat overt type being described to you you know they intentionally forget things they're critical they're negative they'll say my life sucks and so uh yeah yeah, so I'll give you an example of the somewhat overt type, what I what I'm calling it, somewhat overt type of passive aggressive personality. So someone who complains about suffering from many ailments, psychiatric and physical. So that that's actually one of the common, not all, not always present, but it's a common element of passive aggressive personality, it's someone who seems to always have something kind of wrong with them physically. Um, this person is depressed and they're very anxious and they make their suffering known to others. They tell everyone around them that, you know, they're, they're like, oh, I didn't get any sleep last night or, oh, my headaches are acting up. Now, this isn't to say that people don't have headaches and don't, you know, get sleep deprived, but people with passive aggressive personality have been known to, exaggerate or even invent medical problems as a way of uh, getting sympathy, but also just because of the way that they feel. They just feel like the world's in a, an unfair place. And, and by complaining about a medical issue, it just it feels right to them because it's in line with their, their view of the world being unfair. If one of these people were your clients, they will show up to all their appointments, but nothing will be working. And they'll tell you how much they hate other clinicians. This is why it's sometimes confused with borderlines, because there's that element that's common. And deep down, they're really frustrated about how unfair their life is, about how no one cares about them, how no one, no one is good enough for them. And they might even consider suing a past uh, therapist because of how unfairly their past therapist treated them. They might avoid paying your, their bill or they might show up late to your appointments or they might, um, I don't know, just they might even tell you that you're unfair to them or something like that. So so in that reason, I didn't describe that very, very well, but anyway, there, in my opinion, the, what's being missing often in the literature and in the DSM, frankly, are those first two people I described, that husband and then my coworker. Because those are much harder to detect. You can't really, you know, with the with the coworker, you can't say, you know, one of the criteria can't be they're extremely nice to everybody. <laughs> I mean, you can't have that be a. Di- it's 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 the full presentation in the context of that personality that you understand all the different things that are happening. And so it doesn't. So this 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 super passive type of passive aggressive personality doesn't lend itself very well to a list of, of symptoms. So, but then the somewhat overt type is much more easier to describe. And that's, that's the one that's often being described to people. So I just want to go on a little jag here that this is much different. Passive aggressive personality. It's much different than the way lay people will use this term. It's used to label behavior in, in, you know, popular culture not a personality. And people who are labeled as passive aggressive in in are probably not suffering from passive aggressive personality, which is much more severe. So, you'll hear someone say, "Oh my god, that person's passive aggressive." In all likelihood, they uh, the person might be slightly passive aggressive, but they're but as you can tell from the descriptions that I provided, passive aggressive personality is is a very very big deal (laughs) you know it's it's similar to the difference between narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder you know we're all somewhat narcissistic and some people are a little bit more narcissistic than others but very very few of us have narcissistic personality disorder which is an extreme situation all right you know in the same way we've all been passive aggressive right particularly as children We've all grumbled when we were told to do our chores. For example, say a friend really pisses you off. Well, you might take a little longer to reply to their next text the next time that they text you. Well, that's passive aggression. So instead of just replying normally, you're like, well, I'm going to let him kind of stew in this one for a little bit because I'm, I'm angry. That's, that's passive aggressive behavior. Now, that is a far cry. From passive-aggressive personality, and particularly the disorder. Also, in in my experience, it drives me nuts. People will sometimes, if not often, use the term passive-aggressive to refer to people who are actually just being aggressive. I heard someone telling a story recently. She said she was on the freeway, and some guy got angry at her for something, for not letting her merge or something, and he got in behind her and tailgated her for a mile down the freeway. And she's, she's saying it's so typical of Seattle. The guy was being passive aggressive. This is not passive aggressive. This is, this is aggressive, aggressive. This is just plain aggression, you know, driving behind you and threatening you with their car. That's, that's hostile. That and it's obvious, you know, because you didn't let me merge, I am going to ride your bumper for the next mile. You know, that's, it's pretty obvious. So it's important, even if you're using it in the slang way or the common way, that passive-aggressive has an important element of being passive, meaning that it's hidden or covert. Think of passive-aggression as hidden hostilities. When I, when I talk with people about passive-aggression, I'll often use the term hidden hostility instead, because people, it's much more obvious what you mean by hidden hostility. Because sometimes aggression, people don't really even know what that means. They're like, well, aggression? Does that mean like punching you in the face? Whereas hostility, most people understand that, right? Um, so anyway, I, and I kind of think that pe- by you know passive, uh, when someone says it's passive aggressive, I think they mean... That someone, the person being aggressive or the person being hostile is sensitive, overly sensitive. I think people associate the word passive not with hidden, but they associate the word passive with like sensitive, like, oh, you're a passive, sensitive person. And they will use the word passive aggressive to mean sensitive aggression. Like, oh, that guy's too sensitive on the freeway. And so he was aggressive with me because he's, he's passive and sensitive. But that's not what it means. Passive doesn't mean sensitive. It means hidden. So, uh, or, you know, uh well, passive. Anyway, again, I just want to emphasize that with passive aggressive personality, people, you often don't even realize that they're being passive aggressive with you. So, the way that people you the way that people use passive aggressive today in common language they're like oh that guy was being passive aggressive to me well by definition if you know they're being passive aggressive then they're not being passive aggressive <laughs> you know if you know of their hidden aggression then the aggression is not hidden uh, so i mean obviously not all the time but a lot in a lot of the stories i hear from people they, they use the word passive aggressive just to mean hostile you know, for example, let's say in terms of the hidden aggression, let's say one of your employees, you have, you know, let's say you have 10 employees and one of them keeps showing up to work late. But, you know, he smiles at you. He's pleasant. And every day he comes, he comes in and you just say, hey, you know, next time be on time. And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm sorry. I was late. But the next day shows up late. Now, if he has passive aggressive personality, this is just a, uh, a red flag to what's really happening, which is he's doing this because he's secretly extremely hostile to your authority. He secretly hates you because you have authority over him, but he's secretly also extremely dependent on you and needy of your approval. And he's too insecure to communicate all this and to communicate his ambivalence and his anger towards you. So he just shows up to work late because he knows that that will piss you off. That is passive aggression. He smiles, he apologizes, he says he'll be there, but then he just keeps showing up late. That is passive aggressive, okay? Extremely hidden and ongoing and unjustified and strange and, you know... A lot of projection is going on there, right? Because this guy who keeps showing up to work late thinks of me or you, you know, whoever whoever is the boss here, you or me, thinks of their boss as being completely unfair when they're not being unfair. They're just saying show up to work on time. Anyway. All right. So some other details about passive aggressive personality disorder. It can often look like borderline personality because both have low self-esteem, both will be occasionally rageful, both might have turbulent relationships, and both lack a sense of self, meaning that they don't really know who they are. I've talked about this in other podcasts, and I won't go into full detail, but people with borderline and with passive-aggressive, they, because they were not allowed the proper uh, developmental space and room as a child to develop a self, they don't know who they are, they don't know what they want. They don't know how they feel. And when they look into this their own soul, they see nothing and it terrifies them. People with borderline and with passive aggressive will complain about being empty. And so that's why borderline is often uh, a label that is applied to passive aggressive personality, because people are more familiar with borderline. It's also mislabeled sometimes as sadistic or antisocial or psychopathic personality disorder because both can be negative and hostile towards people. Both psychopaths and passive aggressives can be oppositional and both can break rules. You know, both are anti authority. So it can be sometimes confused with psychopathy. The difference here is that people with passive aggressive deep down they do have empathy for people psychopaths they don't have a proper empathy component to their personality but people with passive aggressive do the problem is because they're walking around in a constant state of feeling like they're being treated unfairly it this 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 distorted feeling circumvents their their or overpowers their empathy So if they're left to their own devices, then they, then they'll exhibit empathy, but, and it's real, it's genuine, but because similar to people with borderline, people with borderline have empathy too, but because they're in a constant state of feeling abandoned and rejected and betrayed, they will treat others pretty badly, which appears as though they don't have empathy, but in reality they do. It's just, it's just, um, being overshadowed by some very difficult feeling. People with passive aggressive are often mistaken for dependent personality disorder. There's a ton of overlap between dependent and passive aggressive. Um, in fact, in in one argument could be made that if we want to include passive aggressive in the DSM, it could be just like a subtype of dependent because dependent personality disorder is just so similar. Um, or maybe absorbed into that. Maybe they could just, and it kind of is already. So if you if you wanted to be DSM congruent in today's DSM-5 world and you really wanted to diagnose someone with passive-aggressive, well, considering that it's not included in DSM-5 anymore, you could very legitimately apply the label of dependent personality disorder because the majority of the symptoms are listed there. Uh, passive aggressive personality is also mistaken often for dysthymic or major depressive disorder or other depressive disorders because both uh, people who are depressed and people who are passive aggressive, they're both often in a bad mood. They're both often resentful and they both often see things in a negative way. You know, remember that coworker I had whenever anything strange happened she 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 felt as though the world was coming to an end you know that that she was very pessimistic about the future whenever there was any indication that something bad might happen she instantly jumped to a conclusion that she would instantly jump to the worst conclusion about everything and and incident, incidentally she was very convincing <laughs> i mean when i was around her i would get quite anxious she was very her pessimism was very contagious let's put it that way Also, passive-aggressives can be mistaken for oppositional defiant or conduct disorder if it's a teenager. Okay. It's also, according to research, comorbid, often comorbid with depressive disorders or anxiety disorders or chemical dependency, substance abuse, or narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder, and obviously dependent personality All right, what are the causes? Let's get into the causes here. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. Almost all the literature, at least the literature I came across, on passive-aggressive behavior and passive-aggressive personality is within the psychodynamic and psychoanalytic fields, also interpersonal and relational fields as well. As with all personality disorders, the cause of of passive-aggressive is partly genetic and partly environmental. But in my experience, anecdotally anyway, there's always an environmental element. People with passive aggression always in my experience have been f- significantly mistreated as a child in some way by their parents. Now they might not recognize it as first as mistreatment. You know, in the example that I gave about the husband, if you this fictional person, if you would have asked him about his childhood, he would have said, Oh no, it's great. But when you start actually asking, he's was like, well, yeah, I mean, my mom would beat me when I was a bad kid, but you know, parents, that's just kind of normal. So they might not come forward and just say, yeah, I was mistreated. They might say that they might say I was absolutely mistreated, but, but not everyone knows they're being mistreated. <laughs> a lot of people think, well, that's just, isn't that just how all parents are? And so, You can't just ask your client about their childhood and rely on their self-report. Sometimes you might actually have to dig a little bit, but I'll get into more of that later. So here's the, there's a number of hypotheses, but I'm just going to start with the, with the sort of integrated hypothesis that I prefer. Basically, it's the hypothesis of arrested development, and it's similar to my hypothesis for most personality disorders. We all know about the terrible twos, right? Right when a child is an infant is two toddlers two, they go through the terrible twos where they say no to everything. Now, people who actually know toddlers will know that not every child goes through the terrible twos. And sometimes it's the terrible fours or the terrible threes or the terrible ones or the terrible 25s. I mean, so the phase of being very oppositional isn't always at the age of two, but, but the point is, is that, when children are young they are it's normal for them to be extremely dependent and extremely obedient and sensitive to their parents when their parents are disappointed it they crumble and they can't do anything without their parents they can't make a decision without that you know you, you know a 2 or 3 year old it's it's just like they they can't go to the store by themselves they can't think for themselves they can they need you to be there to make them feel safe and secure for them to make a decision. And they might even often just say, I don't know what to do. And then you have to make the decision for them. That's normal for a child, right? Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, a young child is starting to, de- to develop their own self-esteem and their own sense of self. And so every child will go through some phase in which they start opposing often for no reason. They'll just, you know, the classic example is you have a toddler and their favorite food is pizza. <laughs> and you, you, you say to them, uh, so, you know, would you like a, a piece of pizza? And they'll say, no, I don't want pizza. And then you're like, well, that's strange. I thought you loved pizza. Well, what would you like? I don't know. You know, what, what, what's, what do you have? <laughs> well, let's see. We have peaches. No, I don't want peaches. And so it's this phase of de- personality development where a child learns how to wield power of opposition. Because when when we're born and we're, de- we're developing mat- maturity, we don't have a, a, a very nuanced understanding of that. But, but all of us need to learn how to consider our own needs to even know what we want and know what we need to assess our own needs. We also need to have empathy and read other people and care about their needs and about how we're coming across to them. And when there is a conflict, we need to, as individuals, figure out how to navigate those situations, again, particularly when there's a conflict. You know, someone is telling you that they uh, need you to watch the kids on a Friday night. You know, your wife is saying, "I need to. I'm. A, I want to go out with my friends, and I need you to stay home with the kids." Well, you know, it's not a huge conflict in all likelihood, but but it's a slight conflict. It's like, oh, okay, you're going to go out and have fun, and now I'm going to have to do not only work on Friday with the kids, but I have to do, I have to do the work of two parents because I'm going to be the only one home. So in that situation, you have to think to yourself, okay, well, what's fair here? You know, how, how do I, how do I assess is, is my spouse being selfish right now? Am I being selfish? What's, what's, what's the landscape here? And it, and it's very, it's very ambiguous. And, but, but for most mature people, they're able to figure that that out. Well, children don't know that yet. Right. And they develop it. But if you have some sort of massive incursion on your attachments and your psyche, when you're at that age, as you're developing assertiveness and empathy and evaluation of your own needs, then it's going to complicate your relationship between dependency, assertiveness and empathy. So during this, this important phase of development, You have a child that is being mistreated somehow during this phase and the child never develops a healthy sense of fairness and empathy for other people. Now, the types of mistreatment can really vary widely. For example, parents could give contradictory messages. Like the dad could say one thing, the mom could say another thing. One parent could be very inconsistent and it had to be very inconsistent because every parent is inconsistent. But some parents are extremely inconsistent. So that, that's, that's one version of mistreatment. Also, obviously, just abuse, physical, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. Neglect is another mistreatment. You can require a child to grow up too quickly by giving them, uh, you know, making young children do a bunch of chores while withholding love to motivate them to do so. That's mistreatment. Uh, One of the parents could be extremely angry all the time or blame children for things that is not fair. Or it might not be mistreatment from the parents at all. The parents could just be in a constant conflict between the two of them. And the child witnesses this. This uh, This can lead to passive aggression. Kernberg, whom I sometimes talk about, he conceptualized passive aggressive behavior as an attempt to confirm that the world is inherently unfair and pers- and persecutory, which was a lesson earned early in life. Also, another cause of mistreatment or another example of mistreatment that can result in passive aggressive behavior is a is a family system that scapegoats a parent, like in that example I gave with the husband. The uh, mother was being scapegoated by the family, which made him feel as though his, his mother was basically a joke. And all the while the mother was the primary parent, if not kind of essentially the only parent, because the dad was so distant. So this, you know, this guy, this kid, this boy, he's looking at his mom. as My mom's a joke. She's stupid. Everyone knows she's stupid. She's, ridiculous she's you know silly and she's doling out all these punishments to me that are extremely harmful to me so how did i get in a situation the world is a very unfair place i'm being treated unfairly by this woman who doesn't even know what they're doing this is this is a, an outrage okay so this happens long enough period of time you'll you'll potentially develop passive aggressive personality Essentially, there's a problem here with individuation. You know, that's another term that people use for what I'm calling assertiveness, empathy, knowing of your own issues. Passive-aggressive people are extremely ambivalent about their dependency needs and their individuation process. They they hate being dependent on other people, but at the same time they really want to depend on other people. They really want to be underneath other people's wing, but they also hate the fact that they need to be underneath other people's wing. They want others to think that they are, that they are, you know, super independent, but at the same time, they end up relying on other people a lot and they cultivate dependent relationships with other people, but then they struggle against that dependency they have a chronic feeling that their needs aren't being met and they have a chronic um, sort of gravitational pull toward people who appear strong and helpful people who, who appear who, uh, stable and like in power. They're very people with passive aggression are very attracted to people with power because people with power make them feel taken care of but at the same time because of the way their parents treated them because of their relational traumas they hate people in power they despise people in power and they will become somewhat delusional about the mistreatment that this person in power is bestowing upon them okay So, in other words, this is all just, you know, displacement or transference from the parents. So, you know, the parents are treating them badly and unfairly, and then the child grows up, and as an adult, they transfer all those relations, you know, that relationship with that parent onto everyone else, particularly people of authority and people close to them. Okay, so I hope that mishmash of integrated uh, hypotheses makes sense to you basically it's a rested development um, everyone needs to go needs to have proper parenting and loving and stable parenting to go through the phase of childhood in which you learn how to navigate dependency versus individuation versus assertiveness versus some things are unfair but most most things are fair there's a there's a process that children go through to learn that but if there's mis you know, pretty significant mistreatment during that phase that's ongoing, then the child will never develop that, that sense and will actually develop a sense that the world's extremely unfair and that no one really cares. And therefore, and they'll, you know, be perpetually dependent and all that kind of stuff anyway. So that's my, that's how I see it. That's, that's how I see how that is created. And it's the same way that I see the way that, uh, other personalities are created too: borderline narcissistic histrionic. All right. Well, what would the classic psycho psychoanalysis people say? They would say that people with passive aggression, they are having what I might call because, so this is all my words. They wouldn't use these words, but this is my words of describing their words <laughs> that in classical, psychoanalysis, people with passive aggression have difficulty with the oral phase. You know, the, the infant um, is, you know, breastfeeds usually. Infants usually breastfeed, right? Or not, I don't know about usually, but they, they often breastfeed. And, uh, and now, I don't adhere to this model of thinking, but just to help you understand classical psychoanalysis. So you have an infant, they're breastfeeding, the child's teeth begin to emerge, the child sometimes bites the nipple as their teeth are coming out, the mother naturally feels pain and pulls the child away when the child bites on the nipple. And under healthy situations, the mother and child learn how to accommodate each other in this way. The mother patiently teaches the child to suckle without biting the nipple And the child is occasionally frustrated by this process, but ultimately the child feels loved and accepted. And this process satisfies the oral phase. But some mothers do not manage the situation well. They take it too seriously, the the biting of the nipple. They take it too seriously, or they're overly stressed by their marriage, which causes them to be too sensitive about the nipple biting, or they don't have patience for their child, on, in terms of like working with them on how to help them learn how to suckle without using their teeth. Um, or the mother doesn't have any support and so she, you know, just just feels alone and just doesn't have the energy to ha- navigate that with her child. And this ends up making the child feel very abandoned because every time the child bites, the mother pulls the baby away and then maybe puts the baby down. And then the child's like, what did I do wrong? I, you know, Because the child doesn't know. The child doesn't know that, the child doesn't even know you're another person, let alone that you have pain that he can't feel. You know, so so the child ends up feel, feeling abandoned, and so during a very important phase of attachment, the child learns that they cannot depend on other people, and they also learn that their efforts to gain love and attachment result in causing other people pain, which is the passive aggression part. It's like you know, attachment is suffused with me causing other people pain. They also learned that attachment is is associated with sadism, giving others pain, and they internalize an unhealthy superego, and all this is carried on into adulthood. So so that's what it means by like oral phase complex or something. Okay, so that's psychoanalysis. Let's talk about behaviorism. Behaviorism uh, has a good conceptualization of passive aggressive behavior. It's pretty simple. Basically, children who who or adults who have passive aggressive behavior, the idea is is that as children they weren't able to learn how to be assertive, meaning that they there was a, a screwed up reward and punishment system for their early skills on assertiveness. So when they were when they were being healthily assertive, they were punished and given a bad consequence, and when they were passive aggressive, they were actually at times given reinforcement for that. So that's the behavioral explanation, which of course makes sense. The cognitive conceptualization is that based on prior experience uh, in their childhood, the adult believes that assertive behavior will be met with rejection or abuse. So based on prior experience, they, they have a automatic thought that no one really cares about them. And so through, through that experience, you know, it dictates the way that they think about things and then dictates their, their passive aggressive behavior. Another conceptualization is that culture and context play a role. When you have an oppressive system like the military, it creates habits of passive aggressive behavior in people. Because you can't openly defy your supervisors, your your superiors. So everyone learns how to passively defy their boss. And this behavior is spread throughout the culture. Or in some societies, they have limited liberty, like the Soviet Union was in the past, or North Korea. These societies can breed passive-aggressive behavior because people get angry, but they have no way of expressing it. You know, people today hate all the outrage on Twitter, right? Today, you know, all the outrage, there's too much outrage. But in my opinion, everyone has always been outraged, including today. But they have a way of expressing it now, which is actually a good thing. You don't want people going underground with that stuff, because when they do, all sorts of bad things happen. You know, taking away Twitter or criticizing Twitter outrage isn't going to stop the outrage. It'll stop people expressing it. But you, you kind of want people expressing it in some ways. Um, people, it, it feels good to express yourself. It feels good to be heard. And so in, in some ways, I'm not saying that, you know, all Twitter outrage is a good thing. But I'm saying there are, there are good things about it. Or in another situation, say you have a really domineering boss at your job. Someone who's just really oppressive well, this can also breed passive-aggressive behavior in the culture that you're at. So over time, you know, this behavior might become sort of solidified in people and and habitual. And then they come into your office and they still exhibit it, but they don't actually suffer from the personality disorder. They just are in a habit of passive aggression because of their environment that they're in. Okay, let's talk about treatment now. So, regarding treatment, there's not much research, particularly nowadays, since it's not even included in the DSM. But there is some research, and some of the research indicates that it's tough to see progress in psychotherapy or any treatment for that matter. Which is, you know, it's similar to all personality disorders. There are people who will say that it's useless to try to treat a personality disorder. I am not one of those people, but uh, but if someone has a full blown personality sort of like passive aggressive, it's going to take a while and it might, and therapy might not work. So that's just something to keep in mind. How about medication? Well, it's not likely that any medication and researchers found this. It's not likely that that any medication is going to help. Sometimes SSRIs are prescribed, but they're prescribed not to reduce passive aggressive personality because there's no medication for a personality but the SSRIs can help reduce the depression and the negativity and the suicidality. So, you know, meds are not useful for personality disorders because their problem is not that simple. Their problem is throughout their personality, right? It's their problem. Isn't contained with one within one type of neurotransmitter, if that makes any sense. Okay. So let me give you another presentation in therapy just to, help people maybe assess this they'll they won't come in to therapy they won't say i have passive aggressive personality they're not going to say that right because clinicians barely understand this thing let alone the public they'll come into therapy for other reasons like anxiety or, or depression or a relationship issue or even suicidality similar to dependent people they might actually respond well to therapy at first the therapist will likely feel really good about how things are going. This is similar for dependent and for borderline. When, Whenever this is, (laughs) this is always kind of a bummer, but as a therapist, if the, if, if at the end of the first session, you walk away with a glow of feeling that you are the best therapist on the planet, that probably that that's a big red flag that your client is either borderline passive aggressive or dependent so or you possibly histrionic so you just have to keep that in mind it's, it's always a funny thing it's like well whenever you have really high self-esteem as a therapist it, it's probably because your client is messing with your head <laughs> but anyway so a common presentation is the therapist walks away from the first few sessions being like man i am really good Passive-aggressive personality disorder clients will provoke, through counter-transference, the therapist's need to provide advice. So not only will you feel really good about yourself, but you'll feel, really, you'll feel this incredible urge to fix their problems. The client will outwardly praise the therapist for providing excellent advice, saying, Oh, that's very good advice. Thank you. But deep down, the client is slowly building up resentment and anger towards you but they're not expressing it. They feel as though the therapist is not really listening, but they don't express that. They feel as though the therapist has very simple answers to their complex problems, but they don't express that. And then over time, the therapist will begin to realize that the client isn't really following any of the, of the advice and the therapist will feel very frustrated and possibly even worthless as a therapist the counter-transference will likely involve the therapist feeling as though they are being treated unfairly. So the therapist will start to feel like, hey, this is unfair to me. They might not think of it as un They might not think the word unfair, but that'll be kind of the essence of how they're feeling. But this is all a projective identification inducement from the client, right? Because the client feels perpetually treated unfairly. And so they will involve the therapist in that feeling as well. And if the therapist is unaware of this entire process, the therapist will either create a relationship rupture with the client or the therapist will recommend the client seek help somewhere else and terminate. And after termination, the therapist will say to a colleague, I am so glad I got rid of that client because they never took responsibility for their life. They were always playing the victim card. You'll hear that from people. And from therapists, and you know, I, I'm not going to argue the legitimacy of every time someone says that, but often it's the result of a personality disorder, and sometimes it's passive aggressive that they're that they bumped up against, and they were induced to feel a feeling, they were induced to play a part in a reenactment of their own, you know, parents. the The, the client has created a similar dynamic between you and them that they had with between them and their, you know, their, their parents. And then you just played along with it. You didn't realize what was happening and then, and then you terminated, it, and it didn't feel good. Um, so that's, you know, one common presentation. There are other presentations too. For instance, the client might not ever reveal their negativity or opposition. This is the super passive type, or they might reveal it in the first session and remain that way. That's the somewhat overt type. So they might come into session on that, you know, the first time and either reveal to you how much they hate authority at their job, or they might even openly oppose you and say, like, I don't think your advice is very good. (laughs) You know, they might. So, you know, there's there's a number. But again, the point of why all these things are the same disorders, because underneath all that is this sense of being treated unfairly and this assertiveness problem. Okay. So again, just to put a fine point on this, this is very similar to dependent clients. With dependent clients, dependent uh, clients, suddenly you'll find that you're providing a ton of advice to a client. This is the client's way of getting you to comply with their projective identification and their reenactment of their childhood, in which a person of, of authority is commanding them to do things and not really listening to them. And if you're not aware of this process, you'll fall victim to it, and incidentally, you'll re-traumatize the client. Okay, so what is the exact way to treat these people? Well, as with any good therapy, the number one step is what? You therapists out there, what's the number one thing you need to do? Think about it. You're right. It's build the relationship. Build that relationship. It's a critical step in any form of therapy. You want to have positive regard for your client. You want to have empathy. You want to have a good working alliance. You want to have a good bond. You want to have, you want to listen well. All those kinds of things. So you just, you really want to give the, uh, you know, you want to make sure the client understands that you're listening, that you care that you have positive regard for them. That's very, that's very important because for people with personality disorders, particularly passive-aggressive, borderline histrionic, they, things are going to get tough for them and they're going to have a lot of negative feelings about you. And if you don't have a strong relationship, things will crumble very quickly. So that's number one, build a relationship. Number two, start gathering data. Assess the type of their passive-aggressiveness. And get enough information about their childhood so that you can later increase awareness after the transference begins. So, you know, you want to gather some data about their life and about what their experience is. Number three, once the relationship has intensified, which might not take much time at all, but it might take a while. But so once the relationship has intensified, the transference will naturally trans uh, will naturally intensify along with that relationship. So, in this stage, you have to manage your countertransference. It's incredibly important that you manage your countertransference. you got to have a plan.' You don't, you don't want to just wing it. You have to have an ongoing, robust, uh, vetted management of countertransference system. You can't just say to yourself. Well, if I have countertransference, I'll deal with it when it happens. No, that's not a that's not a that's not a management system. A management system is I've already reviewed, you know, countertransference for many years. Here are here are my kind of hot button issues that I frequently feel. Here's what it feels like in my body, here's what I know happens for me, here's what I know it compels me to do. Here's how I soothe myself. These are the sort of cognitions I run through my mind to help stave off the countertransference. Here's the five people I talk to about my countertransference, you know, all that kind of stuff. Passive aggressive people, passive aggressive personality people will create a lot of difficult countertransference reactions in their therapists. Because of their own relational traumas, they will externalize those issues and the, and the therapist will start absorbing a lot of that. The therapist will often have deep feelings of inadequacy. Like there's something deeply wrong with them and, and them as a therapist in particular, the therapist might feel extreme anger at the client. The therapist might start wanting to demand and command the, the client around, tell them what to do. The therapist might feel hopeless. The therapist might become very negative or the therapist might be extremely anxious about the child's about not the child about the client's life. And again, a very common countertransference reaction is a huge compulsion to fix the client's life, particularly through providing advice. Something wrong with advice, by the way, I, I don't want to characterize advice as something bad, but and I've talked about that in other I think I have an episode called like giving advice or something. I don't know. All right. Number four. So again, number one, build a relationship. Number two, gather data. Number three, manage counter transference. Number four, you know, once transference begins, number four is the crux of it all, which is provide a corrective experience, but only if the relationship is good enough because you got to make, you got to work on that relationship, which is also a corrective experience by the way, but just make sure the relationship is strong and also make sure your counter transference management is strong because you don't want to go into the realm of corrective experience uh, without knowing what's happening. So when the client provokes you to criticize them or to reject them or to start uh, telling them what to do, you have to re- you have to resist that urge. Even internally, you don't you want to resist the urge internally. Obviously, you want to resist the urge externally, but you want to resist the urge internally because the client might actually sense it in your tone of voice and your demeanor. Now, if you can't get rid of it, then whatever, but you really want to try. I mean, I talk about this in the podcast sometimes. The reason why it's so easy for me to treat people with personality disorders is because, I mean, it's not easy, but it's made easier for me. Because I genuinely have compassion for them. I don't have to drum up compassion for people with personality disorders. I feel compassion for these people in my bones. And that doesn't make it like a walk in the park, but it certainly makes it easier because when things are happening, I'm i I'm like, oh, you know, I know where they, So when they're hostile with me, I know where that's coming from. The example I sometimes give is, imagine you're helping your 10 year old son learn how to ride a bike and he crashes his bike and it's bad. He goes down, he's bleeding on his knee. You run up to him and you say, are you okay? And he says, no, I'm not okay. And he yells at you. Well, you're not going to get sensitive about him yelling at you in that moment, right? You're not going to be like, how dare you scream at me? You're going to be like, well, he's, he's hurting. And yeah, he was just hostile with me, but he's, you know, he's in a bad place right now. And so, that's why he was hostile with me. Well, that's the same with people with personality disorders. But when they're hostile with us, it's not because they, except for psychopaths and, and sadists, but so aside from them, for histrionics, for, for borderlines, for passive aggressives to be, to be hostile towards us, it's because they're in that state, in that time, they're suffering greatly. And, And we're just picking up on the collateral damage of that. So, so in this way, you really want, if to provide to provide a real corrective experience, you want in your bones, in your heart, you want to have genuine compassion. You don't want to just act like you're compassionate because I think that clients will pick up on that, particularly people with personality disorders because like histrionic borderline passive aggressive, because, and, psychopathic and narcissistic for that matter because they're they're very attuned to how you're feeling they're very they're very sensitive to other people and so dependent people as well they're very sensitive to what's going on with you and so if you have any inkling of some underlying hostility they'll they'll they might pick up on it you also want to seek consultation during this phase to make sure you're not becoming fused with the patient because as you provide a corrective experience it requires quite a lot of uh, differentiation, let's let's say. When the client rejects your therapy, when the client hurts your feelings, you need to res- you need to resist the urge to terminate with them. You want to stay close to them. You want to reflect their feelings and validate their feelings. So this is the crux of the therapy. So as they are trying to reenact the same situation that happened between them and their parents, as they're trying to recreate that with you, you are providing compassion, attention, attunement, love, patience, and through those experiences, which is what they should have got from their parents originally, their, their relational trauma will begin to heal. Okay. So again, one, relationship. Two, data. Three, countertransference. Four, corrective experience. And five, is to work systemically. If possible, try to engineer these corrective experiences, not just with you, but with other people in the patient's life, like their spouse or even their parents. If you can bring those people into the office and coach them on how to improve their relationships and how not to reject each other, this will result in a very healing situation for the client and for everyone uh, involved. In fact, if you are if you are not seeking this option to work systemically, you in my opinion, are completely ignoring the reality of the patient's life. The patient lives in the real world with real people. So if you want to affect the greatest change, then you need to at least try to affect change in their relationships with other people. And it's much it's much easier to affect change in their relationships with other people if you actually bring them into the office, right? This is why I became a marriage and family therapist because marriage and family therapists are oriented toward toward relationships, not just towards individuals. I know it can sound scary to meet with couples and families, but that's frankly what you signed up for when you decided to become a therapist and you decided to help people. (laughs) And, you know, with, with consultation and training, it, it's, it's not so bad. In fact, I love it. Uh, I, I could honestly, if all my clients were couples and families, that would be great for me. Um, I love my individual clients too, but the sessions with, with couples and families are so dynamic and so, so much is happening. It just, it's very gratifying. Anyway, number six, increase awareness. You want to help them understand how they are transferring their issues from their parents onto other people, onto you. You want to talk about that one first, maybe, and then how they're doing it to other people. Awareness is a powerful thing and helping your client be aware of their personality disorder will help seven emotional regulation. It's always helpful being aware of your emotions, being aware of your thoughts, how to cope and number eight for the passive aggressive. You want to help them with how to be assertive. You want to help them uh, navigate. I, I, I have this model of assertiveness that, I developed upon observing a lot of dependent passive aggressive people in my time as a therapist, that you have three different phases of the development of assertiveness in the first phase in the most immature phase, you are pretty much just obedient, even though on the inside you don't want to obey. And so you're very unassertive and you just, you're just a wet blanket. You do whatever people tell you to do but deep down you're actually you don't like that that's that's the passive aggressive personality the second phase is learning what you want and being able to oppose so this is the terrible twos this is the phase people go through when they're just like no I don't want to do that so in that time as you're as you're in phase 2 you're developing a confidence regarding being, being able to say no to people and and asserting your own your own wants. And when you're a child, an infant, and you're, you're asserting yourself, sometimes you're not even making any sense. Like, no, I don't want to eat pizza, (laughs) you know? So kids will do that. And, and people with kids know what I'm talking about. You know, their, their kids will just be like, I don't want to. And, and they just go through this really oppositional time. Now, sometimes it's just a week. Sometimes it's a few years, (laughs) but you know, there's that phase. And then the third phase is what I call the assertive phase, which is a phase in which a healthy, mature assertiveness is developed in which you consider yourself and you consider the other person and you're flexible and you're willing to have a conversation around negotiating things. So that's being assertive. What a lot of dependent and passive aggressive people will do is they think being assertive is just saying no. To a lot of people in phase one or phase two, when they hear me talking about a service, they'll say, oh, I just need to I just need to tell people no more often. And that's not what I mean. You know, it, if you want to say no and you feel like you should say no, then by all means, say no. That's a good skill to have. But that's not the end of the road. The end of the road is being able to say no. But also being able to, you know, accommodate other people's feelings when you want to. Being able to hold your own, being able to know your own wants, which is actually kind of a skill that not everyone has. Know what you want, assess what the other person wants, and very quickly, you know, gauge the situation. I will sometimes bring up this, this example uh, on a road trip with a friend this is back before there was um, uh, MP3s and all that kind of stuff. So, and we didn't have a lot of CDs. So we just had, or it was probably tapes back then. We just had a, we had the radio. And so, you know, every town we entered, we would flip it to the radio station and we had the system. It was a, it was a three tiered system. And the system went like this. If both of us loved the song that was on the radio, then then we listen to it. If one of us loved the song and the other person was just kind of like, meh, just kind of like, yeah, I don't know. It's then we listen to it. But if one person loved the song and the other person hated the song, then we changed it. The reason here is, is so this is, this is an example of, of assertiveness, is each person has to know how much they hate the song. or how much they like the song, how much they hate it. And they also have to know how the other, they also have to assess how the other person feels about the song. And the situation here is, is like that we figured out between the two of us was if I might, this might be my favorite song in the world, but if every note of this song is driving you crazy, I can listen to this song another time. (laughs) And I don't want you to be tortured by this song that I like. We can surely find another song that doesn't you know it 's not horrible for you that's that's assertiveness you're asserting your own wants while having empathy for another person that's a that's the assertive process assertiveness is not simply saying no that's a, that's very important and very important to passive aggressive uh, treatment is helping helping so that's that's the eighth phase or the eighth element or component of therapy for passive aggressives is to help them help them with assertiveness, which can take a lot of time because as I was saying for some people, they don't even know what they want. They just know they don't want what other people want for them. They they just know they're being treated unfairly and they just, they don't want, you know, someone else is telling them, look, you should buy a red shirt. They just, they, they don't know what kind of shirt they want, but they know they don't want a red shirt because they, because someone just told them they wanted a red shirt. They wanted them to get a red shirt. So for some people with passive aggressive personality, it might take a long time just to get them to slow down and really look inside themselves and figure out what they want, which is, which is easier said than done for some people, particularly because if they have that borderline element of an empty self, when they look at the self, they don't see anything. And so it could take years just for them to develop a shred of a selfhood Enough to be able to even have preferences. I hope you know. I hope you know what I mean. Okay. So again, the eight components are: build a relationship, gather data, manage countertransference, corrective experiences, work systemically, increase awareness, increase emotional regulation, and increase assertiveness. Okay. So let's conclude with the final thing I was going to talk about, which is. Is Seattle the most passive-aggressive city in the world? At some point, I should do a whole episode about this topic because it's a frequent thing that people ask me about. In a nutshell, and I've talked about this before, in a nutshell, there's not much research on this. It's it's not a hot topic in psychology. It's like the differences of personality between different cities. It's just not, no one cares because it's not really important to our profession, I guess it's more like just interesting. Um, but anyway, but there has been some research regarding personality and region. And in a nutshell, people in Seattle seem to have a very similar mix of personalities as any other city in the United States. There's some regional differences. Like when they, the like the whole West coast has one kind of slight difference, but for the most part, when they actually measure personalities, there's not that much difference between different regions of the United States. Meaning that people in Seattle are not more likely to exhibit passive-aggressive behavior or suffer from passive-aggressive personality disorder. You know, I, I've heard people say that Seattle is the nicest city in, in the world. And I've also heard other people say that Seattle is the coldest city. You know, the... the the meanest, the most terrible city on the world, in the world. I think it just depends on the circumstances of your life. When you come here and your perspective and your social skills and the social skills of the people around you, people like, for example, they'll talk crap about people in LA. They'll say, "Ah, LA people are, they're terrible. They, you know, the, all they're thinking about is themselves and they're not, whatever. I don't know. They say, they say bad things about LA, but I find people in LA to be really nice. Just like people in Seattle are. In fact, if you just dropped me in some neighborhood in LA, aside from the weather, I, I don't know if I would be able to tell that I was in a different place because Seattle, it feels similar to LA, but there's these myths that go around around who people are. And obviously there's myths about people in Seattle. So are people, in Seattle, passive aggressive. The answer is yes. Of course, they are just like any other city in the world. <laughs> it's like asking: Are people in Seattle more angry than other cities, or are people in Seattle more sad or more happy? You know, of course they are. Every every every, or not more happy, but everyone's. You know, there's happy people in Seattle, and you got sad people, and you have passive aggressive people, and you have non-passive aggressive people. And honestly, even if we really did. Focus our research attention on this issue. It's really hard to research this, this these sorts of questions because they don't lend themselves very well to quantitative measurement. I mean, how would you measure passive aggression exactly? Most researchers, because they don't have the money, would just simply ask people to self-report regarding their observations of people around them. So you, you would send out a survey to everyone in Seattle, and you would say, um, when it was the you know in the last month has someone uh, has someone said th- something like this to you? You know, uh, everyone else says you're stupid, but I think you're smart. <laughs> you know, they, there would be a list of possible passive aggressive behavior and you would just ask people to self-report. Well, that's, that's not hard science. You're asking people to remember, you're asking people to uh, interpret even the question. And, you know, that's, that's a very rough way of assessing something. And, and, it, are people in one city more likely to remember those things than another city? It's hard to know. Uh, if if the researchers actually had more money, they might actually observe people and code their behaviors. They'd bring people into the lab. They'd have them have a conversation. You might, they might even engineer some sort of conflict, and then they might code their reaction and see if any passive aggression happens. But... Even that is squishy science since the observers are interpreting and coding that behavior. So who knows? We might not ever know the answer to these questions as to whether or not Seattle is the most passive aggressive city on the planet. I'll tell you that, in my opinion, passive aggression is just something that happens everywhere. I, I have a, an hypothesis that in areas of the world that had less liberty, you'll probably see more passive aggression. I don't know that. I don't even have any anecdotal evidence of that. You know, places like Russia or Ukraine that were for many years, decades, under an oppressive Soviet system. Or people in North Korea, currently. I I would, or people who grow up in, in towns where there's a threat from a drug lord in Mexico or something. I don't know. I imagine that those regions have a higher rate of passive aggression because overt hostility can get you killed or sent to the gulag or something. And so, again, just a hypothesis. Um, uh, The other hypothesis, I would say, is... that certain regions of the world where they have had more ongoing transgenerational stress are more likely to have people with passive aggressive personality in, for instance, in Poland, that region of the world for the past several hundreds of years has been routinely um, destroyed and raped and pillaged and overrun and, uh, you know, in the past 10, 20 years, Poland has been a pretty, uh, you know, fairly peaceful place. But in the early part of the 20th century, World War I, World War II times, it was routinely, you know, it was run over by the Nazis and then the Russians ran it over. And I mean, and Polish people were just treated really horribly. Uh, I think people in the United States, unless they know uh, most people don't know the, the amount of just terrible, terrible strife that the people of Poland have been through over the past you know couple hundred years. Well, when you do that to a whole population of people, uh, or an individual for that matter, it's going to affect the way that they parent, right? So if the army rapes and kills your mother, that's that's traumatizing to you. You grow up, and as you start to parent you're not your your parenting is going to be affected a little bit cuz you're not getting any treatment and as a result you're going to see an uptick in all the different mental disorders including personality disorders including passive aggressive personality so that's just another hypothesis but again i don't have any research on that all right well that does it for that super long episode i was right it's been 3 hours I guess it's like an hour for every 10 pages of notes because I have 30 pages of notes here. It's been a fun journey. It's always fun to do these deep dives. Let me know what you think. Uh, I'm curious what you patrons think, especially you clinicians, especially you clinicians or anyone for that matter, who has come across a passive aggressive person. If you've been thinking about someone as I've been talking, let me know. Let me know what you think. It's like, oh, my God, this is this person, or or I'm an expert in passive-aggressive personality, and you were wrong about these 10 things. I don't know. Just let me know. I'm, I'm, I love researching, as you can tell, these kinds of topics, and let's keep the conversation going. Let me know what you think. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, patrons. Oh, actually, <laughs> it just occurred to me that I didn't talk about something. Um. So I also want to differentiate passive-aggressive behavior from when someone just doesn't like conflict. There's a there's a big difference between just being passive and passive-aggressive personality. So, for instance, some people will say, I don't really like conflict, and so when someone bothers me, I, I don't typically communicate it. I just... I just uh, suppress it, or I, you know, talk shit behind their back, and then it goes away. And then, you know, I weigh my, the pros and cons of confronting this person, and I decide not to. That I wouldn't characterize as passive aggressive, in that it doesn't, you know. Pass. I hope it's clear that passive aggressive people with passive aggressive personality have a very distorted view of the world, and they walk around in a constant state of feeling treated unfairly by other people and they have a huge attachment insecurity and they're very dependent whereas and this and what i'm describing here is largely a cultural thing and people will use passive aggressive as a label for this you know people like japanese people are you know considered to be and i think it's Uh, Japanese culture is extremely complicated by the way but um, but they'll say you know Japanese people they'll never tell you they're upset at you they'll they'll just kind of deal with it passively you know they'll they'll just frown at you or something Um, and experts on Japanese culture will will tell you this they'll which I'm not, even though I am Japanese, I'm Japanese American, I'm an expert in Japanese American culture, but I really have very little knowledge of Japanese culture, but being Japanese American, I've talked to a lot of experts on Japanese culture. And what they'll tell me is that in Japan, when you do something that's socially unacceptable, that society will shame you essentially by ignoring you. So this is, you could say, passive, it's, but it's not passive-aggressive in the sense that everyone in that society feels in a conscious state of being treated unfairly. So say you're um, – like one of the things that I realized when I went to Japan was that you could walk around with a beer or with – you could walk around with a bottle of wine anywhere. You can get on the subway. There's, There's no rules as far as I could tell that prohibited you from – from drinking anywhere you wanted to. There were, there were these big, um, uh, vending machines that you could just buy a, a fifth of Jack Daniels <laughs> for the vending. You know, you just, you put in 20 bucks and this clunk, this Jack Daniels pint, or even a fifth would just plop out of the thing. And then you could just walk down the street drinking this thing. And so I was, you know, having fun with my friends and, and I was like, okay, I'm going to drink this beer and I'm going to get on the subway, the train. And I looked around, I was like, you know, it's Friday night or, you know, it's evening and no one else is drinking. And so I, I asked my Japanese expert friends, I was like, why is no one drinking? they're like, well, some people are, but but very few people do. And I was like, well, why aren't they? It's like, well, because it's, it's shameful to do that. And when you do that, people will, they'll just kind of frown at you. They won't say anything. They won't say don't do that. They won't yell at you, they won't conflict with you, but they'll just passively communicate to you that it's that it's a little unseemly. Well, the United States culture, although it has some passive elements to it, it's not as passive. And so if 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 someone's upset at you about something, they'll tell you more overtly. Now, this isn't to say that all Japanese people are passive, and this isn't to say that people in Japan don't yell at people, because they do. They absolutely you know, if you, people yell at each other all the time, in Japan. But the point is, is that different cultures and different people and different families and different situations, people will be afraid for various reasons or just sort of calculate. I mean, imagine if every single thing that bothered you about people you voiced, you know, and were you were never passive about anything. Whenever you were bothered, you just yelled at people and told them exactly what's on your mind. it's possible that that would actually be extremely self-destructive to your relationships, to work, to everything. And so a little passivity, a little, a little nuance, a little, um, what they call it conscientiousness about when to voice your concerns can go a long way. And so I want to differentiate between being internally upset and not expressing it, which is a calculated decision and cultures will vary in terms of how much you should be doing that. That's my big point here. I'm sort of rambling. There's a difference between that and passive aggressive personality. The difference is passive aggressive personality. Like I said, is someone who was raised, who was raised (laughs) in a very uh, abusive family and (laughs) they're, uh, they were treated very unfairly. And so, they are in a constant state, regardless of what's happening around them, they're in a constant state of feeling as if they're being treated unfairly and they're in a constant state of feeling like they're on the verge of being rejected or abused or something. And so, and they're very angry at other people internally. That's passive aggressiveness. So I hope that makes sense because sometimes people will say, I'm very passive aggressive because when something bothers me, I don't tell, I'm very, very passive aggressive about the way I approach life because when I'm upset, I don't tell anyone about it, but that's different. Uh, And if if that's, if that's what we want to label passive aggressive, fine, but I don't call that passive aggressive. That's just, that's just, you know, you could say it's passive, but you could also just say you just don't like conflict and you'd rather just let it go than get into a conflict with someone that, you know, there's nothing pathological about that. It can become pathological, but, I hope that makes sense. All right. That does it for that episode. Take care of yourself because you deserve it.